Whoa. What's up, guys? I just wanted you to know this podcast is brought to you by Onnit. Go to onnit.com slash Dolce and check out Mike Dolce's ultimate grocery guide. I walk you down the aisles of your local grocery store. And I tell you what to buy. I show you how to shop. I instruct you how to choose your fruit, your vegetables. I explain the difference in cooking oils and types of meat. That's onit.com slash Dolce. Take a look. Shut up and sit down. What's up, guys? Today we have on Mr. Frank Carreri. Frank is a world-class Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt and three-time IBJJF Masters world champion with more than 250 competition wins. He's also a journalist with his work appearing nationally on Fox News, CNN, USA Today, MSNBC, Court TV, The Associated Press, and many others. Pretty damn impressive. Frank has also conducted his own TEDx talk. He's worked full-time for the Ultimate Fighting Championship and continues to grow his talents and skills in, in communications. And I think that's really how I see Frank. He's, he's a communicator, a grand communicator. You can, as you'll hear in the show, his grasp of language and story is married perfectly with his philosophical approach to life. Now, Frank actually graduated uh, with a degree in philosophy in addition to being a professional journalist and such. I enjoy conversations with Frank, and he and I have spent just dozens, if not hundreds of hours in, in different parts around the world and definitely here in Las Vegas where we both live, uh, just sipping coffee and just having deep intellectual conversation. Um, so I, I really think you're going to enjoy this show. We cover a wide variety of topics, UFC pay scale, entitlement mentality, um, what it is to be a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, the, the, the drive. Um, he's very focused in, on nutrition, as you can imagine, a three times Masters world champion, uh, competing every day, training every day with 25-year-old studs. Frank's, you know, certainly old enough to be their father, your father, for you millennials listening right now. Um, but just a really brilliant guy and, and a good soul. I do hope you guys enjoy. What's up, Mike? Not too much. There we go. Good, good. Yeah. And you can hear me well. I hear you well. Now, speaking a little closer, maybe within four inches or so of the mic, probably is best. Wow, this is good. There you go. You sound awesome. You can always adjust that if you need. So uh, when I just came in, for those listening, uh, I had a backpack on my right shoulder, so I shook Mike's hand with the left, and I was saying... Um, in some Middle Eastern cultures, that would be a bad thing. Yes. And Mike, you were all over it. You knew you're aware of that. It's because you wipe your hand or wipe your wipe your behind yeah. with the left hand. That's the sign of disrespect. Yeah. So I'm not. So I actually try. I don't want to do that again. I might be be doing a little bit of teaching uh, in the Middle East. So I don't want to get. I got. I got. I got to brush up on that right handshake. So backpack on left shoulder only. That's right. That's the. Uh, well, that's a great way. And to by do. the way, though, on, on, to the point. Uh, I was at the gym last week, and I was in, using the restroom, yeah. 
and there was an old man there, and this guy was washing his hands like no other. Like he was okay. incessant, right? You know, former the, surgeon, the 40, maybe. Right? Yeah, the forty-five second rule, whatever, yeah. right? You know how they say whatever it yeah. is, right? You're supposed to wash your hands 45 seconds, whatever. He was getting after it. And I was stopping admiring. Like, I wanted to make, you know, normally it's taboo. You don't make a conversation with a guy in the restroom. Yeah. But this guy was so, uh, was so incessant about it and washing his hands. And he looked like a real mature, to your point, yep. smart guy, educated guy. It's a high-end gym. And so I was, like, waiting. I was like, man, I need to, like talk to this guy like because i i put a lot into the character i always say like i don't i wouldn't want to do a business deal with a guy if i went into the restroom and then the guy doesn't wash the hands yes i I don't know i just don't know i feel like you can't trust that person in some other and then they go out and make your burrito yeah literally literally so this guy goes i didn't make conversation with him i went out i was like this is going to be awkward so i did not make the conversation (laughs) with him then literally while I'm washing my hands, I see another guy, you know, hits, hits the, uh, you know, um, go, uses the restroom, hits the thing, you know, whatever the wash thing, tsh, does, does the token wash, just like literally turn the water on, like literally one, two seconds, token wash, slips the hand under there just psychologically, yep. and then he left. So I was like, the tale of two hand washers. Right. Right, ta- right back to back. I felt like it was a sign of from someone, something bigger. Yeah. Right? I'm like, Wow. And, and of course, I didn't want to make conversation with that guy, but I thought, then I thought, well, man, psychologically, there's a reason he did that because he, he wasn't worried about me watching him. That yeah. was probably for his own psychology, right? Yeah. You want to feel like, well, yes, I wash my hands. He knows what he just and did. So he did the minimum yep. to feel satisfied. And we do that. Yeah. And the point being, we do that throughout our whole, through our lives. We do those things where we, uh, where we convince ourselves we're giving more, we're doing more than we are, and we do these little things to psychologically satiate us and make us think, oh, I, yeah, I am doing that. Yep. Yeah, but you're doing it half-heartedly. Yep. Yeah, but you're just bare, you're minimally doing it, right? Are you really doing it? Yeah. Calling it in? Right. That's what I love about you, Frank Carreri, and that's why you're here, is because of that mind and your perception. You see things. You see everything. You see things through many different lenses. We just had Dr. Bo Hightower on, and he he oh, he holds two doctorates. He's pursuing his third. He's got his master's in exercise science. He's a CSCS. He's got all these different things. And he said, this just simply allows me to see my patient with a different lens. Mm-hmm. If all you have is a hammer, everything you see is a nail. You are very similar in many ways. Now, I first met you through the UFC where you interviewed me. Yeah. But the interview essentially... The Mike Dolce Diet. The, the, yeah. Boom, the Dol- the Dolce Diet. And maybe many people listening right now have read your work and are here because of you. They read the UFC, who is this Dolce guy, and you did such a good job. But I was like, oh, God, here's another MMA journalist I'm going to have to deal with. Who is this Frank? Wait a minute. Wow, look at this resume. Holy shit, investigative journal. This LA Times, I believe? No, Las Vegas Review Journal. Las Vegas Review Journal. Uh, Salt Lake Tribune, Fox 5 News here in Vegas. And then I've, but I've had my work appear in usatoday.com, Bleacher Report, cnn.com, which I know CNN's on, been under a lot of fire lately, but... We're going to get into uh, that. Yeah. So, you know, cnn.com and, and uh, a, a number of others. So it's been... Uh, 20,000 plus interviews. I love like what you're doing right now, the art of the interview. Everybody wants to do it now, right? Everybody wants a podcast because it's the greatest thing ever. And I was on to it 22 years ago. I was like, you just get to sit here and pick people's brains of all lifestyles, ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Who are my favorite people, by the way? It's ordinary people doing extraordinary things who have great stories, but maybe they don't have the wealth or affluence that get people's attention. But anyway, yeah, so... 
I'm I'm right there with you. This to me is the greatest thing in the world. Just exchanging ideas. I've always loved your vibe. We've always got along well. So. Absolutely, we, we have lots of similar worldviews, and we work in very ancillary. We work in ancillary worlds. Yeah. We're, we're we're a content creation company. That's yeah. that's how we now define ourselves. And we're, we're Italian, so we got that Renaissance. Thing. We, we got like twenty things we want to do well. You know, the cooking, exactly the, the art. You know, you design your house and and uh, whatever. So you know, there's. That's a good point, though, because yeah. it is, and it's not just confined. It's not you're just not. Well, Frank's also Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. Yeah. Okay. Two stripe. Two stripe. <laughs> this is a high. If, if that's all you were and nothing else, you would still be an elite category of human being. A very rare person who has accomplished something that almost nobody does. Right. I think it's, yeah. I, I asked for statistics. I talked to Caesar Gracie. I talked to Pedro Sauer. I asked Robert Drysdale. And I, my big question before I did a TEDx talk on Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was. Because there's been there's no formal statistics that have been compiled, right? Yeah. Nobody's compiling great statistics in jujitsu. It's still in its infancy. So I'm like, what percentage of people who walk through those doors and train at least one day stay and see it through to black belt? Yeah. And I got the range. One of them said to me, maybe one in 250. Another said maybe one in 300. I believe it was Cesar Gracie. said, no, that's close. And Cesar Gracie's been around a long time. Yeah. Like, I believe it's closer to one in 400. So it's a, it's a 10-year, you know, it's a 10 to 13-year black belt. Again, it doesn't mean that you're the baddest thing on two feet. No one's claiming it is. It's just, all it says, it's just like a college degree. All it says is this person tries to finish what they start. Yeah. They don't just get off the treadmill easy. That's all it says. It doesn't make you the baddest thing on two feet. There's people of all different athletic abilities, people who don't want to get punched in the face. There's people who, the, the, the proverbial stereotype of the jiu-jitsu, who, jiu-jitsu guy who will get punched in the face and just yeah. will. There's, there's, there's some of those guys who won't. Absolutely. They're, they're nasty. They're mean too. So it's a, it's a wide spectrum, but at the very least you respect, look, this person, you know that, especially if they're from a le- legitimate black belt, they started that. It was not easy. It was not given they will stay on the treadmill longer than most. Absolutely. They'll keep chewing. Yeah. Right, they'll keep chewing. And, and that's something that's rare in many journalists in, in any world and sport that I see that I know through my experience. And I'm, I'm fortunate to have the experience on the political side back when I was in that world here, kind of more in, in the sports side. And then, you know, pay attention into some of our other aspects. To have that multidiscipline mindset that you do and you're just not I mean it, it's hard so I was thinking well how do I actually introduce Frank how do I define Frank it's hard hard so that's why I was like but by the way Mike and let me say this before I forget it because it's so huge it speaks to you it speaks to me it speaks to Joe Rogan it speaks to so many people that are listening we are in an age where it's the it is the it is the, a resurgence of a renaissance and what do I mean people don't want to be pigeonholed and label just one thing because yes. it labels it labels you psychologically where I say you are this and then it closes you off to other opportunities. There have been so many people. Schwarzenegger was known mainly as what? As Mr. Olympia. Yeah. And now he's not. Yeah. That's an afterthought. Most people haven't seen whatever it was, getting pumped, whatever it was. Most people haven't seen that. Yeah. But they've not. seen Conan, and they've seen Terminator, and they've seen... So, you know, Joe, Joe Rogan is one of those guys, yeah. too. I mean, Joe Rogan does every... Joe Rogan does whatever he wants. He's a black belt. He's a comedian. He, you know, he's been... He's, he's hosted major... TV shows. He's, I mean, he is, his podcast is like the top 10 of podcasts. And he gets sick ratings. He has great guests on. He does whatever he wants. And that's a lot of people listening to. It's a psychological, once you start pigeonholing yourself, I am just this. And then you close yourself off to, I, I always say, I'm whatever I need to be at any 
given time to get the job done, to get the challenge that's done in front of me. If I need to learn, I've had health problems. You know, I've had, and I and I'll talk about this. I mean, um, you know, I'm 45. I'm in phenomenal Fuck, shape. You look great. Phenomenal oh, shape. 35. I'd say you look great. Yeah. So thank you. So I have, but I have a propensity for blood clots. Gotcha. I get blood clots, and now I get them above the knee, which is dangerous because those break off. They can become pulmonary emboli, and those are potentially life-threatening. I never want to be that guy. I'm that, you know, my nickname in jiu-jitsu is the organic tank, Frank the organic tank, because yeah. I'm always eating. Frank the tank was the, the, just the thing the Hawaiians yeah. would say, the obvious thing, Frank the tank. And then they always saw me eating organic, and they're like, organic tank. And, <laughs> and, cool. and it does fit, even yeah. though it's cheesy, but it fits because I am. I'm that guy. I'm always trying to eat certified organic, whatever, whatever. And it's like, here I am getting these blood clots. And I have these narrowing of some of the arteries in my body. I've had a bypass surgery at age 19 wow. on a blocked artery in my leg that ended my collegiate wrestling career. And so my big thing was I don't want to be that guy who supposedly takes great care of himself, who's super conscientious, and who drops dead at 45. And people say, see, yep. see, it doesn't work, that organic thing. When it's your time, it's your time. Just live. And that justifies all kinds of bad behavior that they do. Absolutely. And so for me... I've had to go when you when you get life challenges like that. I've had to go deeper down that rabbit hole and become like a more like a, a dolce where I'm like I need to learn more about food on a science level. I need to I don't know that I thought chicken and rice was the healthiest thing you could eat and yep. some steamed broccoli. I, it didn't matter if Pollo Loco made it. You know it didn't matter. I thought that's healthy. I'm eating healthy. Yep. I'm living right. That was what my awareness was. You don't know what you don't know. And so anyway, you're a blue belt. Yeah took a step i was right yeah and so now you had to become more that area of my life you have it where there are areas of our life that demand become more in that area and so never pigeonhole you You always keep it open you may become you and i both and people listening may be better known someday for something else that's way far off of what you know what most people know you as and introduce you as yeah I agree, and I hope most people eventually know me for something more than jumping around my shirt off. <laughs> you know what I mean? The, the, the sweating monkey is what I call myself. Um, and, but that's okay, because we need those in market, too. So what is the name of the condition that affects your arteries? Well, is there a condition I, I guess or technically just... you, would, you would call it atherosclerosis at okay. the end of the day. And you just um, have a, a genetic... Uh, predisposition. You know, I, I, look, I, I've always believed as Mr. You know, I was a philosophy major in college. I've been thinking about thinking forever. Sure. Right? I'm just, if I'm awesome. anything, I'm, I guess you're a thinker. Like, I'm a teacher and yep. I'm a thinker. Yep. And that's really, if I had to put one broad label on it. And, you know, I, I grew up in inner city Baltimore. You're an East coast guy too. Yep. We're both East coast guys. Yep. And so I think that's why our energy is intertwined pretty well too. Hey, fuck um, you. Yeah. So <laughs> that's, that's it. That's Mike. That's not me. That's oh, that, not, is, that was Mike. That, that is me. Mike. But you're thinking it. I'm saying it. <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, so, so, uh, I, I think most disease, I'm a believer that most disease in the body begins as dis-ease in the mind. And that goes back to, sure. you know, Eastern v- medicine. Valid. And that's and, and I just believe that. So I believe that we make our bodies vulnerable to whatever it is. You know, okay. Yeah. Not you, it's, I believe. That. Mike's fixing my mic. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, my Mike, fault. I got to get that. Mike with the mic check. Mike, Mike, Mike check. Yeah. That's what we mean. It's M-I-K-E check. Yeah, is it still clicking? It's still popping a little bit. Yeah. We're going to keep on. Okay. So, ladies and gentlemen, that is my fault here. I didn't do my that due diligence technical prior. technical difficulties, Mike. Mike but it barely happens. So. so you're going to have to become an expert at technical stuff I'm now. getting much better. Yeah, there you go. Actually. Yeah. I mean, it's it's you know it's, it's not my iPhone anymore. Yeah. So here we are. So with under that theory, which I subscribe to, whenever, you know, I see even like Amanda Nunes this past, yeah. you know, UFC 213, I have tremendous respect for Amanda Nunes. She's a beast. Yeah. And American Top Team is... 
definitively one of the best teams. Uh, yeah, but I, I, I went. I mean, I created a video. I created a video around it, not to pick on Amanda, yeah. not to pick, but because it's a great topic. Somebody with stage fright, it shows you. I mean, it's a reminder what any of us in the combat sports, whether you're a wrestler, whether you're a jiu-jitsu player, whether you're an MMA fighter, cage fighter being the pinnacle yeah. of mental toughness and that fight week being mental torture like no other, messing with your mind like no other. To me, it was like just a reminder. Look, Jermaine De Romaine doesn't want to fight Chris Cyborg. Yeah. Right. All kinds of like you're just seeing more of like, no, I don't want to fight that chick for whatever yeah. reason. Now, in Amanda's case, and I say I say this stuff factually, not critically. OK, because I believe she wanted a way out before I heard Michael Bisping say it before Dana said it before Dominic did. I can see things. I can read through quotes. I can read through situations. I've been I've been scared myself yeah. in the 300 and some competitive tournaments I've done. I've yep. been there. Um and I know a way out when I see it. And when Amanda came, and I hope Amanda, God bless, I hope Amanda gets together and maybe she'll even beat Valentina if they fight in September. But my thing was, she came out on Instagram or, or whatever and said, look, I, I was cleared because of the weight loss thing, but I got antibiotics for a chronic, I think it was sinitis or whatever yeah. thing, whatever, whatever. Now, this is my, my, uh, my thinking on that. Yeah. You can, even if you're, if you're sick during fight week, and I remember I had a friend, you know, he, he trained with me, he was a black belt, and his mom said, he always gets sick before tournaments, yeah. If yeah. you're that person and you're sick, you're probably not sick because you got exposed to germs. You're exposed to germs all the time. Yep. You're sick because you're so wrapped in fear and anxiety and whatever. Yep. That's probably the root. You're scared of the situation. Yep. And now your immune system and everything else, now you're susceptible, now you're vulnerable. And by the way, if you're going to doctors... For anything, look, this is the most prescriptive, addictive nation in the history of man. Literally, factually, 45% of all the prescriptions written, 45% are written to Americans. We are 4% wow. of the world's population. That's a fact. We are 4% of the population. We are 45% of its prescription drug wow. uh, use. We have, you know, they're saying in the next 10 years, the estimate is 500,000 more opioid prescription deaths alone, alone. 500,000. Yeah. So you can, the point being, you can go to your doctor and get a prescription for anything tomorrow yep. for anything. So I don't doubt that somebody had a prescription written. That does not mean you didn't want a way out. Yep. That doesn't mean, because you can go get, I've had three broken hands. I can go to the doctor tomorrow. I'm having pain from this, this, this. He'll, he'll sign his signature right there. Yep. Right. And take, so. Be, be careful with that, with the other doctor said, because every fighter going in there has something that if you, know, you could get a doctor to write you a prescription for if you wanted to. I've worked with athletes that were sick, sick as a dog, obviously sick, so sick, the entire team wanted them to pull out of the fight, their family wanted them to pull out of the fight, and they said, I'm fine, I'm going to whip this motherfucker's ass shut up with that stuff, I'm fine. And they mentally, still sick, mm -hmm. willed themselves into whipping that other person's ass. And I've seen people who did the same thing as, as you're saying, is they completely shut down. Yeah. And what Randy Couture said years ago is excitement and anxiety, is it's the same exact thing. It's just perspective. Yeah. So Great point. And when he makes the walk and, and he's, he's one smiling, of the mental masters, him, Dominic Cruz, two of the mental masters. Mental masters. So you're listening, and this army veteran, right? Yeah. Randy Couture, people forget that. He's a Greco national champion. I mean, high level athletic, you know, competitor in a really tough sport, which is wrestling. 
army veteran, so he's got gone through that. That a lot of people, myself included, haven't gone through military. And then he's one of the most dominant, the most dominant mixed martial artists on the planet for many, many years. He was the guy for quite a long time. So you listen when he says something about that, you listen. So making that walk with that same exact feeling, and it's the feeling of you know Christmas. We're asking a girl out. It's that same feeling, channeled or, or with perspective, and that's that's the thought. So a lot of the people in, in the industry, yourself included, felt that Amanda just she was looking for the way out. She had the way out. Now I think what you're saying is she may have even created the this issue, the chronic sinusitis, or at least the side effects, the effects she was feeling, which gave her the reason. I don't doubt that she has a chronic problem with that, whatever. For sure. But, but I think who she's doesn't? been fighting with it and compete. She says she has a chronic whatever. Well, you've had it, yep. and you beat the mess out of some other top fighters. I mean, she beat up Ronda badly. She beat up Misha badly. Didn't bother her then. Now you get the person that on paper is a really tough matchup for you, who doesn't get tired. You got tired in the third round. Yep. You got a chick who you're looking at in the stare down, right? Yep. Normally Amanda Nunes looks at you at stare down. She's she's like Mike Tyson. She's got him beaten at the stare down. Yep. You don't have Valentina Shevchenko beaten the stare down. No. You look Valentina Shevchenko done flinch. Watch the stare down. Yep. And I don't think that she saw what she wanted to see in Valentina. Yeah. And so in addition to questions about your own gas tank because you did fade in the first fight. This chick is this chick beat Joanna in a Muay Thai kickboxing fight. Yeah. And Joanna and even Joanna fighting 20 pounds heavier as a Muay Thai kickboxer, she's a beast. Yeah. And she beat Joanna. Absolutely. So, you know, by the way though, to your point about fighters sick and whatever and and you know still willing themselves. And I don't think anybody else we might be breaking news here by the way. I'm going to let this the, Always. Break, well, that's break. why you're here, brother. We're going to break some news here, huh. but but I, I have a good friend who is who is good friends with uh, with Chael Sonnen, and that fight with with Tito Ortiz, the Bellator yeah. fight, and he didn't look like himself, yeah. and and it's just the weird looking fight. I mean, you know, he gets tapped and all. It's like it's a weird fight to watch. I'm like, what is what is? I know Chael had the layoff, you know, two years or whatever for the USADA violation, but I'm like, he just let this look weird. Well, anyway, he said Frank Chael never said this publicly. Chael was really sick that week. Now. To my theory, was he scared of Tito Ortiz? Yeah. You got yourself sick, whatever. But the bottom line is, Chael Sonnen was really sick. Yeah. Certified. Hasn't used it, hasn't said in anything, to my knowledge, publicly about that. Yep. But what did he do? He made the walk. He didn't use it in the press conference after. He didn't. He never pulled that card. Yeah. And when you, by the way, the language, let's read into the language, make the walk. Because you hear a lot of fighters, and like fighters use that against me too, because I'll sit there, I'll ask them questions, I'll be candid. I love to get in the mind of a fighter. Yep. And at the end of the day, one, the one, the one they want to stiff arm you with, well, you wouldn't know you haven't made the walk. They use that against any fan criticism. It's yeah. always, you wouldn't know you haven't, unless you've made that walk. There is a code there, there's a camaraderie, there's yep. a bond between fighters because they've made the walk. And now, what does that mean? It means they know what you had to go through. They know the fear. They know how your mind plays tricks with you. Yeah. Fight week. And yet you still made the walk. That is what they respect the most. Cause they, it's, you know, again, all the difference between the coward and the warrior is the warrior goes out there despite. Yeah. Despite fear, despite doubt, despite voices. You know, I remember I went to, it was 2007 in Houston and I was working, I was really privileged to work closely with Dana White around yeah. that time. And I went down there with him and he put me right up in the front, which was, you know, uh, which was great. And he actually got mad because I was like, I don't want Dana White's seat, like ringside, cage side. Yeah. And he said, no, no, take it. He got, that was one of the only times I've ever seen him get mad with me was when I was telling him, no, you take your seat. 
he didn't like that. Dana doesn't like to be told anything. Yeah. Right? So he's like, no, sit down. You know, that's the only time I've ever seen Dana mad. And we've, oh. you know, we've had disagreements <laughs> or whatever over other things, you know, little things. But that's, that's a good reason. For- was, no, I don't want your seat. Yeah. No, you better take my seat. Anyway, so I remember he came before the main event. It was Matt Sarah versus GSP. And he said, uh, Frank, I was just backstage with uh, Matt Sarah, and he is confident. He is riding high. I mean, he is telling me how he's going to beat. He's going to shock the world. He's this. And he said, I just saw GSP, and I've never seen GSP so nervous and scared in my life. He's like shaken before that fight. Just to show you that even, and of course, GSP, of course, that night, Matt Sarah hit him behind a temple, TKO'd him, and shocked the world. One of the biggest underdogs to ever to ever do that in MMA. And of course in the rematch, GSP just steamrolled him, right? In yeah. Montreal. But the point being that even I seen Anderson go watch the documentary Like Water with Anderson Silva. He's fighting Chael Sun in the first fight. Yeah. And there's a part in there where he says, I just wanna go home. I just wanna be before the fight. I just wanna go home. I just wanna be with my family. Like, why am I doing this? The point being, even the best, the best of the best, the strongest of the strong, get that. They go through that. They go through that whirlwind, right? They go through that internal battle. But at the end of the day, when you see them, when they come out, the Donald Cerrone's, the Anderson Silva's, and they make that walk. They don't pull out. Daniel Cormier, don't pull out a fight. Daniel Cormier is a mentally tough. Randy Couture, you know? And if they do, they have so much cred built up, it's like, okay, you know that they were legit. They got hit by a truck. Yeah. Yeah, that's what happened. And Chael came up under Randy. Yeah. That was his protege. He was the, the, the training dummy, essentially, for Randy, for Lin Lin, for Henderson, where they were going through their Olympic trials and, and all the way up into the MMA world. So you kind of get that. You get the benefit of that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now, your time in, inside the world of MMA as a journalist... It's brought you a lot of, a lot of people sat in this chair, sat in front of you, and you yeah. have the ability to really drill down. And you've seen all types, all champions to just up-and-comers. Are there any definable traits that you see that are generalized? They're all a little bit different than the average accountant, maybe. Well, Mon- Monty, Monty, Cox, Monty Cox was, of course, one of the preeminent sure. agents in the early years. He was very closely tied to Pat Milich's team back when Pat Milich's team, but Tim Sylvia, Jens Pulver, they Number produced, one. you know, one yeah. or two teams in the world in that. And uh, Monty Cox, Matt Hughes is rep. God, by the way, I hope Matt Hughes, I mean, I, I haven't seen any update, but man, that's that's a horrible story. We can talk about that. That's, you know, and I, I did a story on him just last year for hunting, and that yeah. was, I mean, that was, he was great. And anyway. Any, to, to sideway, is there any information on how Matt's truck ended up in front of a train? Like that, I haven't heard that asked or reported on. Yeah. How does that happen? You know, I don't want to speculate. I mean, interestingly, I was a cops reporter for most of my career, too. I was an ambulance chaser, which okay. eventually I wound up not liking and not enjoying. Sure. But I basically had the same schedule as a homicide detective did. I didn't know if I was going when I, you know, I couldn't make a plan. Yeah. I'm training at 6.30. Maybe I'm not training. I'm going to. Some event would happen, yeah. some newsworthy yeah. event, and you'd have to you go and cover it. You slave to your, your pager back then. You know? So uh, it's... Who knows? I mean, it's it's just something where, obviously, the police and the family are being very sensitive to things. And, um, you know, out of respect for Matt, I'm not going to, uh, I won't speculate. Um, it's just a, it's a sad situation. Um, and, 
you know, anytime for any athletes, I think it, when their, their career is, is over and the cheering stops and I don't know, it's, it's, it's a possible, it, it could be something his fucking brakes failed on the damn whatever vehicle he was on and he rolled that's something or the dude behind him was on his cell phone rolled forward and accidentally bumped his bumper or he decided decided to be there i mean, it's because as soon as i heard i said what, how, how did that happen it's like how do you get put in front of and i don't want to go too deep on this respectfully yeah, yeah. don't have the information but how did that happen mike's fixed we're back how did that happen there's a lot of questions, and I guess now that everybody is focused on him hopefully coming out of this and making a recovery, I mean, I think he's 43, 44, he's got a wife and kids, and um, I guess everybody would rather the focus be. But there's obviously a lot of questions. As a, you know, as a, as a reporter, you would want to know how do you as wind a up friend, at 10, 10, 10.30 on a weekday. And probably the thing is with a lot of these, you know, Matt's a country boy. Matt's a very smart country boy too. Okay, hunter, outdoorsman. So Matt probably knows every every terrain, every road, every track in that area. Sure. He's lived there. So, you know, you do have questions, but I guess it's better to reserve them. Let him, let him, let the energy be on the recovery. Hundred um, percent. By the way, though, he is. I mean, as much of a giant, he's got the nine of, of all the. I did a story years ago for UFC Mag. And we were like, who has the most UFC belts? Because yeah. in the old days, every time you defended a UFC belt, they gave you one. Yeah. So he, I think Hughes had defended it nine times. Which they should. Yeah. Absolutely. They give you a new belt. That's like a $5,000 wow. triple gold-plated belt. I didn't know that. All right. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's a nice... Anyway, so I was like, well, I got to start interviewing some guys. I have a lot of these belts. Yeah. So, of course, Matt Hughes was the kingpin. He had nine belts. And I'm like... So I interviewed him. I'm like, where... Uh, where are the belts? Uh, well, two of them are here, and one's in the barn, and one I gave my buddy. I think two of them are under the bed, and it was interesting. He couldn't keep track of all his belts. Wow. He, he had so many belts. And again, it was like, too, where even though he's proud of it, he's like, I don't know if you're like this. I have, uh, by the way, I'm blessed. I've, I've got quite a few writing awards, and and I'm going to brag here for a second, but jiu-jitsu wrestling, where I got a, a war chest up, yep. and not a one of them is posted. Not a one of them is out anywhere publicly in my house. I couldn't tell you they're tucked away somewhere. I don't put them out because we're still writing this thing. We're still sure. creating a legacy. I don't live off of any of that. I believe the biggest things I'm sure you do, I'm sure a lot of people listening, the biggest, the best is yet to come. Yeah. Uh, none of that defines me. But interesting, when I was talking to Matt, I was like, hey, same kind of mentality. He didn't live in all, he don't even know where all his belts are. You yeah. would think most of us would. Randy Couture did. I went to Randy. Randy did. But anyway, Matt, since, since I don't think he, I don't know if he ever formally officially retired, but since then he had, you know, he is huge in the hunting community. I mean, he's a huge outdoor, you know, TV shows and he is huge there. He goes on some really pristine, and we're talking like forty, fifty thousand dollar expeditions and adventure hunts. Wow. He goes on them and with a who's who with, you know, super wealthy people, he knows his stuff. So he uh, he was probably bigger now in hunting than you know than in MMA. Wow. Okay. Um. So he had it wasn't like even though you know the cheering had stopped and I know that fighters can miss that thrill of making that walk and and that you know because it's it's an aliveness like no other you know even sure. you know, for anybody even in just jujitsu just a jujitsu tournament and a wrestling tournament is like man it's an aliveness yeah. that's what you miss yeah but I'm saying he had a chance to replace it because he's still going on these hunts. And Randy's a big hunter too, but 
But by the way, to speak to that aliveness, um, that's why I love the whole you know competition thing. I just did the American Nationals, IBJJF, um, and it's it's uh, and they have a, a thriving master scene, right? Like the UFC doesn't have a master scene. Yeah. They put you in there with a twenty five year old kid. I still face a lot of the young kids. I train with them. I'll still do adult division, and I still have competed against the young kids, but. But more and more these days, I'm doing the Masters division, right? Guys that are 35 and older, 40 and over, and they have sure. a lot of them. And I, it's hard to walk away because that alive, and that's that that feeling. It's the feeling. That's what most of us are after. We say we're after money, we're after this. What you're after is you're after a feeling. Yeah, you're after a feeling, and some feelings are fairly priceless, right? And so, you know, that's a guy like Matt. Matt is an adrenaline junkie. Matt loves. Um, I know this from interviewing him multiple times, and and you know I've met Matt Hughes, and and um, he loved. He loved that too, just like I do, just like you do. He loved that. And I thought that hunting was filling that void because he was big in hunting. Sure. Um, so It's interesting. Now, from your journalist background, you see what's going on in the media these days. What's happening out there? Where was the... Because there's... I remember growing up watching the news and feeling, again, younger mind, and feeling like you're getting the straight story. There's always a little bit of bias. Then the advent of cable news and the cable news wars, and then now what we have right now is complete reality television being passed off as news. So you, as a legitimate journalist, how do you see what's happening? You've, you've worked. You've, you've you know, worked for CNN. You've worked for Fox News in, in yeah, certain... I did some, some work for them. Work yeah. for them. And so you've had a, a professional relationship. CNN.com, yeah. So you're, you're, you know, kind of at that level. What do you see that's happening right now? And how can we, as, as consumers of content, how can we really tell where's the fucking, what's the, what's the actual news? What's the truth? And where's the journalistic integrity that doesn't seem to exist in, in only a rare few? Well, speaking generally, not about CNN.com, because again, I've done some stories that have been carried on CNN.com, um, which I'm very grateful for. I'm actually very grateful sure. to have them on my resume and, and I'm lucky that, they actually publish some of my stuff. And um, so just speaking generally about the industry, about the trend that you're describing, I think a lot of it, at the end of the day, it's ratings, right? It's like Connor versus Floyd. What is, how does Dana justify that fight? What's well, the fight the fans wanted? So it's like, don't blame me. Sure. You guys wanted, wanted it. To you guys are going to pay $100, whatever, for it. Yeah. And it's, it's huge. At the end of the day... Is it that the media wants to give us all this, all these just talking heads and blowhards and extreme, like the biases went off, you know, off the, the deep end, right? It used to be, there's always been bias, but now it's sure. blatant um, over the top. But I think at the end of the day, they just saw that, unfortunately, that's what the consumer wants. It's like Kim Kardashian. I mean, Kim Kardashian, it's you and insane. I could sit here and we could drop a theorem that could change the world right now. And this is a discussion if we did that like Einstein did in the Swiss Alps. He discovered it when he was 19, and it took 17 years for the world to catch up. We could come up with something incredible right now, and it would be missed, and it would be no big deal. Kim Kardashian could you know, step out of a van somewhere, wherever, wherever, slip, and that has people's hmm. attention. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. It's like, are we, in other words, are we to blame? Are we as a people, as a society, just getting what we deserve? Is it that they're just giving it to us and they're manipulating us? Or is it that they realize, no, I'm giving you exactly what you want. This is exactly what you want. You don't want the intelligence stuff. You don't want the thoughtful stuff. You don't want the BBC-style pieces. I'm not saying BBC does great stuff, but they go more in-depth. 
Brother, this is the crazy thing. This is crazy. If you watch Spanish news, the Univisions, if you watch Spanish news, their news segments are way longer than ours. And we look down, we're like, oh, we're so much better than Mexico and Latin America, whatever. They go deeper into stories on their regular newscast than we ever do. Far deeper far longer segments, which have a broader depth to them and perspective. Because when you just do quick hits, soundbite hits, you can't bring perspective. You can't bring proper context. You can't even let people make decisions for themselves. You can't give them enough information for them to make an intelligent decision. You just scare them temporarily, grab their attention. Um, so the problem is, is the real problem. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm posing the question, is the real problem that we as a society are getting, in general, what we deserve, that we're not thinking. You know, there was a guy named Earl Nightingale. Earl Nightingale was like one of the fathers of motivation. This guy was super bright, I think, early 1900s, and he used to say, and forgive me, but he used to say, if most people said what's on their mind, they would be speechless. Ha, that's awesome. And I'm just saying... You know, there are the guys like the Rogans, the you, the me, and there's people with their podcasts, and we want to go deep down the rabbit hole. But what percentage of the population do we represent? Are we just in an echo chamber where there's 15% of us and we have the perception that what percentage of people really want to go deep down the rabbit hole, really think things through, really not just be a slave to their how they were born, how they were programmed, this party is right, this party is right, whatever. And who wants to just be fair and say, look, put aside your party affiliation, just look at the issues and say... Okay, what what could we do here? If you're a liberal, I mean, you've got to agree the Republicans have some points on some stuff. And if you're a Republican, a diehard Republican, you got to agree they got some good points on some stuff too. Maybe I should go over there. And if you're a libertarian, there has to be more middle ground than to just sit here again and label and say I am this and I have to be this at a party affiliation and and Donald Trump is this or whatever. And it's like, well, you know, even Dana White, I'll give you an example. So like Dana White, I mean. You know, Dana White is a controversial figure. I can't tell you how many people, because I, I worked closely with Dana for a couple of years, and I like Dana White. I cannot tell you how much flack I get from some friends. Dana White did this. He doesn't pay the fighters. He doesn't do this and this and this. Hey, go off. And I'm thinking, listen, first of all, you don't you know things about Dana White. You maybe know, you know, he said this or that's that you didn't like. But the problem is you don't know. I know another side to him. I know a Dana White where literally they get letters from other countries. So-and-so needs a heart heart transplant. So-and-so, how much is it going to cost? The letter gets to Dana White. Dana White, when I was there, there were all these bleeding heart letters that came in from wherever. Can you send us an autographed shirt? Can you send us this? So-and-so has cancer. This kid needs a heart transplant. Do you know that those letters had to be read and they had to make their way up to the top to the to Lorenzo and to Dana they had to if those letters were just discarded you were in trouble they had to be read Dana White literally for whatever we can sit here and say he's inconsistent about this he that he shouldn't he's never fought he never he shouldn't blast fighters whatever people don't like and I'll leave that to them because there's something you know I can't I would probably do a lot of things differently but I'm me but at the end of the day, people only have, usually when we go and we judge people, all of us, we have half the story. We don't have the story of, wait, this kid that he never met, he gets a letter and they need 85 grand and he writes a letter for 85 grand before he was worth 400 million. Wow. When he wasn't worth, when he was worth 100 million, here's 85 grand. Doesn't say anything about it. When they were doing Make-A-Wish at UFC and they still probably do it. I haven't been there since 2013. 
Lorenzo Fertitta's orders, don't advertise it. Don't do what ESPN and the others do. Everybody, NFL, make a wish. Look, we spent time with this kid. Let's milk some mileage out of it. Let's milk some capital out of it. Nope. Don't, don't, don't blast that. Some of the things that would make them look good, they didn't want the attention for. I don't know their reasons. I don't know their reasons. But it reminded me of like something out of the Bible where it's like, don't do your good deeds in public if you do... I'm paraphrasing. If you do your good deeds, you've already gotten your reward. Yeah. Don't expect a reward. I don't know if that was or wasn't, but it makes me think of that. They did do as much as they could run a tight ship. I wanted more money, too, by the way, when I was there. I wanted I wanted a lot more money. <laughs> Hell I like, yeah. I like Dana. I like Lorenzo. I wanted more money. I thought I was worth more money, too. Yeah. Whatever. But at the end of the day, for me personally, which is why I don't, um, what, which is why I still like Dana a lot. For me, I was always treated well. Dorenzo used to walk by and say, hey, Franco, Franco. You know, they were always nice. They were respectful. They included me in things. And so how am I going to go? Imagine if I made a habit with you, with other people, anybody listening out there who doesn't like somebody public. Imagine if you got close to somebody. They let you in their house. You had dinner with their kids. They took you on road trips, whatever. They always treated you with respect. They gave you nice stuff for your wedding. They were jovial with you. They cared about you. And then when you're not around them anymore, you go and bam, and you, and you, it just doesn't feel right to me. I don't know if it's the Italian thing. I don't know if it's, you know, a code. East Coast Italian thing. It doesn't feel right to me to do that. So maybe I do give a pass, whatever. Maybe I am because I'm emotional, but I do know another side. That doesn't mean I agree with everything I don't, but it balances me to where that's the, that, what I'm saying is that's the approach yeah, we should be taking to more people is we don't know, we operate, we make judgments, and there's been psychological say we make judgments so quick about people and we don't know the whole story. Maybe people say that it's hey, same thing with Amanda, Frank, you're judging or whatever. I'm just saying 98% chance you want it out. You make, you, there you, could be that 2% chance I'm... You make the walk. Yeah. I mean, that's and not disrespecting Amanda at all. You make the walk. That's what you've signed, and that's the Chael Sonnen model. Yep. You make the walk. You sign the contract. You make the walk. And you, you could argue back. John Jones pulling out of the uh, Chael Sonnen short-notice fight when Dan Henderson got hurt. You make the walk. And you might go out. You might lose. But then you come back and you fight again. That's the, the warrior mentality, the concept. There's more integrity to that because Connor's fighting. There's no doubt that Connor's fighting Khabib, Johnny. Like, you know, go, you go through this yeah. list. So your point is, is excellent. I think you use... You try and get as much data as possible before you make your yeah. decision. You got to go with probability. I mean, there's yeah. a one percent chance o, OJ whatever it didn't whatever. You got to go yeah. with. <laughs> what, if I get what looks to me like ninety eight percent probability, adding everything up, I'm going to go with it. For sure. And there is that two percent chance you have egg on your. Okay, well, you know, no, none of us is perfect. But by the way, I would say too that, and this is in the media now too, and there is this mean-spiritedness that seems to take over things. We are a really divided nation. Absolutely. And things are so mean. And at the end of the day, even like what we're talking about, people say, oh, you're being critical and you have no right and whatever. At the end of the day, I I like people. Like, I'm sure I would Just like Amanda. A commentary. Yeah. It's not. She's a great, yeah. sweet girl. Every exactly. time I see her, she calls me coach. Exactly. I'm sure I would like her a lot. Yeah. And I'm sure she is, she is a beast. And so anybody, I have a Frank Mir story I can tell a little bit she later. She probably regrets it right now. Exactly. Every second She's going to regret it for, for the next 30 years. Every second since. Even yes. if she can, yes. odds are she wins that fight. Tough fight. Maybe. She, you know, mind maybe. it anyway. Yeah. But still, she. I know. On that day, maybe she won't want out. Maybe it was just that one. 
It was Mike Mike Tyson before Evander Holyfield won. He couldn't yeah. see the fear. He didn't whatever. He wanted a way out. In his case, what he do? He bit the ear. Yep. Right. So, but I have a Frank Mir story about love uh, it about this uh, too, Topical. which I'll tell in a second. But but the point being that mean spiritedness. At the end of the day, anything. The one thing for me, and maybe you're like this too. And but and what I'd like to see more of is like why can't we vehemently disagree and then still be friends? And why can't we just stick to you know, this is a melting pot. This is 330 million people. This is an experiment that really hasn't been done that much throughout history. Yeah. All these different people and groups thrown together. That's not a monolithic place. It's not a homogenous place like Japan or Italy. People of all these different upbringings and all this different programming, why can't we, we should be able to disagree, but still say, look, I still care about these people. Like Amanda, even, I, I still have tremendous respect for her. I'm not trying to like pick it. Say, I'm better. I'm holier than than thou. I don't respond like that to fear, and none of us ever should. Of course, of course, we all exactly do. the opposite. The reason I think it's a fascinating issue is we all feel that we've all been Amanda Nunes at at, at points in our life. We just weren't fishbowled. Yeah. We've all been that. She's all of us. Yeah. She's every fighter who ever made the walk, but maybe they just made themselves make the walk. But she's all of us. Everything she's feeling, it's it's humanness. There's a lesson. In, one of my pe- friends on Facebook when I when I made you know I talked about this, she said, "Well, what would you have said to Amanda Nunes?" And, you know, I just like off the top of my head and I'm like, at the end of the day, this was, this is a coachable moment. This is a educational moment for all of us. That's the reason I talked about it, not to pick on anybody because we've all been through that. It's just a reminder. We're all going to have those battles where we're scared to go out. We're like, I don't want to go out there. I mean, imagine I was saying to one of my friends, and I know it's different because it's Barbra Streisand and it's singing. Green Day. Green Day just had a concert, and someone was doing acrobatic. One of the workers, professional acrobats, died during the show, fell to their death, plummeted to their death during the show. Horrible. Terrible. All the people see it. What did Green Day do? The show went on. Now, they're criticized for that. It is heartless. I can see that. But let's look at the other side. It is heartless on one level. It's like, wow, that's heartless. You guys should have stopped immediately. But let's go to the other side. The other side of that is they are trained as musicians. The show goes on like what you're saying. You have this wrong. You have that wrong. The show must go on. Elton John, if the power goes off, I can guarantee you Elton John keeps going. Stevie Wonder, if the power, if something goes wrong, and things always go wrong behind the scenes for these big yeah. music, always go wrong, the show goes on. Green Day was doing what a lot of the great ones do. It's made them vulnerable to criticism, but they were like, the show goes on. Barbara Streisand, like imagine if it was like, no, Streisand says her voice is just a little off today where she's not going out. People paid $500, $1,000, $1,200, whatever. She's not going out. They all deal with that yeah we all do and sometimes we shrink but it's a coachable learnable moment by the way going to the frank Mir story if i unless you yeah no please I, please I like it so the frank Mir story frank Mir just announced you know announced that it was announced today that uh after 16 years with the ufc he's only been with the ufc wow he's moving on right so and he's lost like six of his last eight fights and uh i have an interesting frank Mir story so it was like circa 2008 and I was at the UFC offices, and Frank Mir came in, and um, you know, big guy, six three, two seventy. Frank's a lot bigger in person than than he looks on TV. Giant of a man. Yeah, yeah. He don't look that big on TV for some reason. No. Uh, but but he's a big dude in his hands. He's like you know, talk about Bro- Joe Rogan always talks about um, Brock Lesnar lunchbox hands. Well, Frank yeah. Mir's got a big hand too, big paw. 
And so we, you know, I'd never talked to Frank. I trained at Drysdale's. He would, tra- he trained with Robert Drysdale. I got my black belt from Drysdale. He trained with Drysdale, uh, you know, sometimes. And we fi- I finally got a chance to talk to him and, and we were talking and, um, in the course of talking, I'm a very candid guy. I'm the kind of guy, I don't like to say something behind your back that I wouldn't say to your face. It's not to antagonize. It's just, I feel ugly if I do that. Sure. I feel like I have to let you know that I did think this. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't want you to hear from somebody else. This is really what I thought. Let's be real here. And also as a journalist too, it's a chance to take take things head on, but always do it respectfully, right? So I get away. I've, I've say one of the hallmarks of my journey. I can ask people tough questions, but I do it so respectfully and usually humbly that people will answer those questions, questions other people, the other, that they'll get mad other people ask them. So we and I got talking and I said, Frank, I'll be honest with you. I saw some of your fights a couple of years ago. I mean, I just saw, I saw a guy who wanted out. I saw a guy with poor cardio. Yeah. I questioned your heart. I did. You know, I didn't think you had it. I thought you were you were done. I thought you were toast. Dana White had said the same thing around the time, too. I did. I told him that. Now, I was amazed at how maturely, Frank Mir is a cerebral guy. He's a thinker, too. And how maturely he, you know, he didn't get defensive. He's a very confident guy. He didn't get defensive. He didn't anything. He seemed to understand that. And, you know, of course, he went through his, uh, he, he broke, you know, his femur and that motorcycle accident and yep. he shredded all, a lot of ligaments in his knee. And so he went to some dark spaces mentally after that, too, wanting to quit and just spiraling his life, spiraling out of control, you know, not healthy living. And, you know, that, that Frank Muir and I have always been very friendly. And if I see him at Whole Foods or something, we'll talk for a half hour or whatever. We've always been. And that's the way that things should be. Frank Muir is an amazing guy, by the way. 0-9 wrestling. Started high school wrestling. 0-9, wow. zero wins, nine losses. By senior year, he was 44 wins, one loss. Wow. Every time you count Frank Mir out, he's the I mean, like I said today in my video, he's comeback kid. He is Mr. Redemptive, Mr. Nine Lives. This guy, his arc is like a lot of ours. He's up, he's down. But yeah. just when you count him out, if if you're the kind of person like you need redemption, go 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 Google that guy's story. Go Google his arc. He's yeah. been down and out. He's been counted out. One thing that amazed me about him too is he his camp was always on the lazy side, in my opinion. Now, what do I mean by that? I put him and like Vitor Belfort in that category, two guys that jump out where their camps, they they build their own little camp, right? Before Connor was doing it, you know, you saw professional boxers like Mayweather does it where they make their own little mini camps. They don't just go to like a Greg Jackson, hey, there's 50 tough guys in the room, let's just train. Yeah. You know, they really like, low, let's get five of the right guys for this fight, even if they're guys people haven't heard of, and we'll cater it and tailor it to your liking. And Frank's done that a lot of his career. Vitor did that. And what do those two guys have in common? They both have lasted a long time, though. They've taken less damage. They had more tread on the tire. Sometimes less is more. They trained. They tried. People accuse me of lazy because they weren't in the shark tank every day and getting after it in 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 an elite gym day after day after day, grinding, grinding, grinding. And they were off, you know, doing their own little thing, setting up their own little camp. But Frank's 38, says he wants to fight seven more years. Vitor's had a long career, too. Hasn't taken. They didn't. Neither of those guys has taken a lot of damage in training. Frank's been knocked out, TKO'd eight times in fights. Eight times. Wow. But the amazing thing is, so that's a lot of times. That's a lot of times. But when you talk to Frank, and even when you hear him in the booth, he was in recruit. I mean, Frank is a very astute. Frank's faculties are still there. He's sure. a sharp guy. And I attribute that to, well, he didn't use up all the bullets in training, where most of the guys, if they had eight or ten, they've yes, been sir. KO'd. Then they plus whatever you didn't see in practice, which is usually a lot more. 
Frank didn't take, to my, to what I could see, he didn't take all that. And yeah. by the way, when he started working with Ricky Lundell, he evolved so much as a fighter. He didn't have good cardio. He started having d- r- r- you know, good, cardio. good cardio. He didn't Five have good cardio. wrestling. He started having good wrestling and against Cormier. He stuffed it a lot of the takedowns. Yep. He, you know, he knocked guy. He knocked out Big Nog. Well, people didn't think he would. He knocked out Krokop. Gave him his own medicine. As, you know, yep. so he's done some amazing things. And I think if you're a person like if you want. If you if you're in a rough spot, go go punch in a Frank Mir highlight video and look at this guy's career ups and downs and ups and downs, and uh, a very you know very inspiring guy and a guy and a reminder like don't sometimes we think we know what someone's made of and we don't absolutely they can come back they can be somebody can be like man they're not giving everything and they can get it right and they can give everything they people people do change yeah I like that now when you told Frank that you had some doubt. What was his response? How did he handle that? He was very mature. He didn't get mad, I, but he was like, you know, I, 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 of course, at the time, I felt like maybe he sized me up. He wants to see why I'm saying that. Am I trying to be a jerk? Whatever. But, um, you know, he, I, I'm trying to think. Um, you know, I think he just sort of was like, well, you know, I, I needed to do this. I was at a low spot in my life because he was. Okay. And... He needed to get right. And, you know, the thing is, when you get right, it's just like anything. You know this, Mike. I mean, you're, you're going to fight the way you're, 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 you're fighting is an expression, right? And fighting is an expression of our inner. Whatever's inner is, gonna, is what comes out, right? Same thing with, with speaking. If we're speaking candidly and authentic, authentically, whatever is really in us yeah. comes out. And so, I mean, he just wasn't right internally. And it took him a while to get right internally. And that's why we were seeing what looked like a half-heartedness and, and sloppiness. I mean, and you know... Um, so, you know, he was like, like, I just wasn't right. I did. I did want to quit. He's an honest, candid guy. I love that yeah. about him. He's a very authentic, honest uh, fighter. And he's one of the few. A lot of fighters are like, you know, well, whenever you, if you say anything and if, they, if it's remotely critical, they're the first one, oh, I'll punch you in the face or why don't we fight? And that actually bothers me about the fight game. It bothers me. Like people are just too quick. Like the fighting solves everything. I understand. There's a time and a place for it. It's, it's noble. It's valuable. There's a time and a place for it. But to just rush to that, right? When, when you're having a good debate or when you're trying to make a point, you can't just rush to push the button. I'll beat, well, I'll beat you up. Yeah. So that makes me right. I mean, that sort of bullying mentality, which I hate. And, and that you do see more of that. You don't see that in the NFL where if you say something to, uh, you know, except for Ryan Leaf in the old days, uh, you know. But normally, if you say something to the to a linebacker or whatever, he's not. I'll, I'll punch you in the face, you know, or whatever. Or why don't I do whatever? But but MMA is a different animal in that. Like it's like that's supposed to trump everything. Well, I'll just beat you up. It doesn't matter how what, what your ideas are, how logical you are, how reasonable, um, a thinking man's kind of thing. Sure, it's. Yeah, I'm right. I'll punch you in the face. And how? When did you start working for Zufa? I started working with Dana right around 2006. Got hired directly by him at a time when they were tur- turning down Harvard people. So wow. I was, you know, it, it was. Uh, and the thing, the lesson I would say for that guys is, when you go into a company, you know, they they had everybody and their brother wanting to work for them. Um, when you go in, first of all, if you if it's ever possible to bypass HR and a bypass. Um, uh, underlings usually go straight to the top if you can. Whenever you can, yeah. if, if you can, go straight to the top because things get done way quicker too. Yeah. I find the people at the top, believe it or not, are nicer to you. The gatekeepers are we are meaner. For sure, they're meaner. Yep, they like feel like they have to protect them. Everybody wants them, and they're protecting their own ass. Yeah, they're protecting their job, protecting yeah. their usability, their usefulness inside the, that middle tier. Yeah, middle management. So go spot. go go as high as you can, and then secondly, 
as much as you can, try to create your own position. Pitch, paint a vision of what of something that's not happening in the organization that could happen. Like try to paint that picture, you know. Um, hey, it's, so anyway, that was a fantastic time. You and I both were there yeah. when we got to see this thing built. It came from nothing. I mean, I remember people thought I was crazy. It was a blood sport, and my editors and, and friends and all thought that it was like a it was like something was wrong with me. Yeah. By the way, I want to make this. this I want to make this point because I, I, I did not answer this question earlier, and we've been dancing around it. You asked me, what did all the fighters have? That the commonalities, yes, generalities. Thank you. We got we got sidetracked. Monty Cox, the yes, great, the, I like the, it. The used to the old super agent used to say to me, he used to say, "I say Frank, what's the thing? The one thing they all have." I asked Monty that. What's the one thing they all have? I said, "Well, for one thing, no matter how smart they are, they all have a screw loose. They all have a screw loose. You have to have a screw loose yeah. to go into a cage. It's not an insult. Yeah. I have a screw loose somewhere. You probably do too. Yeah. You went into a cage. You know, you were a wrestler." The great ones usually have a screw loose. They're maniacs. I mean, that's the that's the thing. That's what I would say. Yeah. They, there's a maniacalness. Anybody who wants to, to risk that much, even when there was no money, by the way, there wasn't sure. even hardly any money. These guys were nuts. It made no rational sense whatsoever. The other thing that I would say, and I got, uh, uh, I interviewed Dan Gable. I've interviewed Dana White. At, you know, at length. Those were two of my favorite. I've interviewed Sylvester Stallone, wow. um, Mikhail Gorbachev. One of my favorite interviews, probably top 10. It's interesting when you don't get something, when something is deprived, when it, when it doesn't come easy for you, it has more value, right? Sure. And so Emmanuel Stewart, who worked with 30-plus world champions in boxing, who was an interesting guy, Emmanuel Stewart had like 200 and some amateur wins. Oh, wow. 200 and some. He was a phenomenal boxer. And guess how many professional fights he had? Zero. Zero. You're, you're a smart man. Wow. Zero. And part of that reason was that even back then he said he just didn't know how he was going to eat. He had another job, and he found that he could make more money um, doing, you know, just jumping quicker into coaching and everything. So that's what he did. And so I said to, me, to, to him, I said, uh, I finally got him to interview him. I finally got to interview him. I was like so stoked. And I'm like, and I was like, what's the one thing? that you saw in all the great fighters you worked with. And this is an interesting answer. I told this to Dana. He did not like it. But this is an interesting answer. And I agree with Emmanuel Stewart. And he said, I said, Emmanuel, what's the one thing you saw in all of them? He said, a big ego. And what he meant, he didn't mean the bravado that we think of where you have the Floyd Mayweathers and the Connors and even the Ali's because he's worked with some really humble, but meaning there's a big ego there, meaning... They want to prove I am the best. I'm the best. They have a tick. They have that competitive tick, which is, no, 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 no. It's me. I'm the best. That being the ego. Not, yeah. not in the sense that regular people have, well, it's a bad thing. That's, that's a terrible thing. He meant it. That's something people assign to it. He's just saying that ego of, look, I don't just shrink. You think it's going to be you? No, it's going to be me. It's my day. It's my time. This is my mat. This is my ring. You have to have an ego to do that. You have to be territorial. And that's what they all have. They all have. He worked with De La Hoya. He worked with Lennox Lewis. He worked with Miguel Cotto. He worked with Tommy Hearns. He worked with who's who. And by the way, I want to say this. Uh, this is maybe not even connected, but while we're talking about world-class trainers, Emmanuel Stewart, I did. I sit around on Saturday nights. Other people are partying here in Vegas. I'm you and I. You and I I'm a slow living. Home you got sipping tea. Yep. Exactly. So it's a Saturday night, and I'm I'm 
usually reading or researching or watching some jujitsu videos or writing. And I live a very low key Spartan lifestyle. And so I'm like, you know, everybody is always like, shut up. You didn't fight. You know, shut up. If you say anything, right. Anything publicly, shut up. You didn't fight. You didn't whatever. That's the, that's their best comeback. You never fought. You never would. And I, of course, I have been, and I've had plenty of human conflict and human combat. I've had tons of it. And if anybody wants to bother to do any research, they'll find a trail of a lot of it. But <laughs> criminal record. But I've never, you know, no, actually, uh, I've never been arrested. Good man. Good I've man. never been arrested, and I have uh, no criminal record. But um, so I'm like, you know, let's go look. I just want to see. I cr- let me take. I, I I came up with eight names of eight of the top, what I would consider the top 15 trainers in the fight game. Eight of them. Wow. Let me punch their win loss record. Okay, let me punch their win line. How many proven professional wins between eight of the top 15? And some of these guys are in the top five. Some of them are top 10 MMA trainers. You guys out there can go do your own research. This is what I sit around and do. A grand total among the eight combined a grand total of exactly one professional win. One. One. Wow. Okay. Fact. Not conjecture. And these guys know what they're doing. They're really good coaches. They got one more win combined than I do, professional wins, in a cage. Wow. So my opinion might count for more than people think. Because eight of them combined have one more win than I do. And I'm, I mean, maybe I'm going to go out one day once I get right with my leg and everything and my blood clots, and I might go out and get my one, or maybe I might even be greedy and get two. And then that'll kill that stupid argument of, well, don't say anything because you don't know because you've never... Da-da-da-da-da. That's the mic drop right there. You just walk away from the conversation. Yeah. I didn't know that. And I'm yeah. not going to ask names because no. everybody can go and do their own No, answer. you can go do it, and you, you, sure. it won't be hard. For sure. Eight of the top 15, you can, you can come up with the names. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and that's not an indictment of them at all, that these guys know what they're doing. Sure. They are very good trainers. They're getting, they have the talent for a reason. It's just to show you, it's the same in the NFL. Bill Bulichek, highest level of football, yeah. Division Three. Yeah. The guy who was opposite him, the, the coach of the Atlanta Falcons, what's his name? Dan. Um, I'm out of the what, football uh, loop. Yeah. yeah. Uh, D3. Huh. D3, football player. ASPN did a story last year of all 32 NFL coaches. I think 12 of them had professional experience. It was usually CFL or Arena Football League. They had a grand total. All 32 NFL head coaches last year had a grand total of one Pro Bowl between them. One. One Pro Bowl. So, so much for the mythology of, look, just because you – when. When you're a Michael Jordan, and they haven't had a lot of success down there in Charlotte as a franchise. Sure. They haven't. Why? Because when you're a great one, you can see the greatness in you, but you may you can't see the greatness in others, or you don't know how to build it. Yep. And, and, and but other people do. Other people, like maybe a Greg Jackson, or he doesn't see the, or, or a Gus D'Amato with Mike Tyson, yep. they don't see the greatness in themselves. For some reason, they don't have the tools, whatever, the physical tools, whatever. They don't see the greatness in themselves, but they can see the greatness in you and amplify it. They know exactly what to do. Yeah. And so it's not necessarily the same skill. There are the Kale Sandersons of the world that, you know, or, or even the Phil Jacksons, who was a good player. John Wooden was a good player in his day sure. in college. But there's a long line of people that weren't good athletes, weren't even, you know, Marv Levy, who took the Bills to four Super Bowls. They lost all of them, but took them to them. Never played.
hated football. Yeah. So careful with that argument. It gets thrown around, and I can show you a long line of, nah, that, that's just a weak argument. That's interesting. Did you see what just happened with Ariel Hawani? No, I did not. So he was barred from covering the McGregor-Mayweather fight by Showtime. Allegedly, he put out, he tweeted at the behest of the UFC. So the UFC requested him not to be one of the journalists credentialed to actually cover the event, although he is allowed to cover the the press conferences. Well, so I I know I have met Ariel. I like Ariel. Ariel is a nice guy. Um, Ariel worked for, you know, he worked basically for UFC de facto, right? When he worked with Fox and he got, um, great access and I don't know. I mean, look, it's, it's at the end of the day, this is still Dana White's baby until he's gone. It's his baby. And I'm probably not going to be credential for that thing either. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, he, that's between those two guys. What do I think of it on a journalism level? From a journalistic perspective. From a journalism level, I would say, you know, there was a, there was a very rich and powerful man that I knew. And he used to say, never pick a fight with people who print, uh, you know, uh, print ink by the barrel. Right. You never pick a fight with them. It's it, it, me picking a fight with the media is a dangerous, you know, Dana has been able to get, get away with it. Yeah. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm more, look, people have the right to criticize. They have a right to do that. And they actually promote the event. Right. So yeah. the media, the media, how much, if you add up all, what is that worth? All these guys covering, um, your show, your whatever, what is that worth? If you put a dollar, I mean, it's, tens of millions of dollars a year collectively. And, you know, the NFL seems to, I mean, you know, if you look, I I love, um, this is just, I'm just speaking for myself, the Baltimore Ravens.com. They just, their, their marketing team, et cetera. And the PR team won a, won some awards from the NFL and Baltimore Ravens.com. Um, I believe that's what it is. They, 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 you know, Steve, I, I think this comes from the top, but Steve Bishotti, Let's them ask questions that you just don't see. Like teams are, you know, team journalists are allowed to ask the athletes. Like normally they steer clear, but they they take on big questions that you're like normally like, well, let's just brush that under the rug. Gotcha. And I see that, and I'm like, I really respect that. They they let their team, you know, apparently Bashadi and the organization from the top down, they let them like, look, okay, you can you can ask those questions, you know, oh. go ahead. And I've I've always been of the mind. That whenever there is anything, if it be a scandal, if it be something that's going to make you look bad, my philosophy has always been own the ugly, right? If there's something, the worst things people are going to say about Mike Dolce, you know, you become bigger and bigger and bigger. Take ownership of them. Own those things because then you weaken your adversaries. You weaken, you, you, you know, once you start playing gotcha with the media, you start making it where you start denying, 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 and then they go down a rabbit hole and they catch you, yeah. and they're going to try to hang you, and they're going to run stories for a year, two years. But it's way worse. When you own it, what are you going to do? If you're self-deprecating and somebody's going to say, Mike has this or this or this, and you're like, and you own it, and you make jokes about yourself, what is it? it disempowers people. Yeah. And I've always been a big believer in that. That's my philosophy. Now, Dana is an emotional guy. It's, it's, what, it's what has made them phenomenal. It's what gets him criticized. And I can't 
defend, you know, say, hey, he's got, you know, if, if that's true, by the way, if that's true, that's Ariel saying that. But if that's true, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, apparently they, they had a personal relation. I mean, again, it's a little different because it's not just that he's banning a journalist. He's banning a journalist that he had a very personal it's a personal thing, and it's not. He's not just making it personal. It was personal. Okay. They had a personal relationship. He gave Ariel great access. It's personal. You know, Kevin Ioli, who I know and who I used to work with, has has written some critical things. They haven't banned Kevin Ioli, right? Yeah. But Kevin Ioli never officially worked or never de facto worked with or for the UFC or that closely with Dana. I think Dana in the I'm conjecturing here, but it's possible. That if this is true, if what Ariel is saying is true, if it's true, maybe Dana feels betrayed. Like, man, I sat here and like I helped, you know, build you. I gave you great, gave you great access. I brought you in, and this, and you repay me by just trying to take down my business and take me down. And just ask yourself this as a person, because now it's personal. It's not just a regular journalist, right? This is not just the New York Times covering the NFL. This is a guy who worked closely with Goodell, and is, Goodell is paying him money. And giving him access, and now him and Goodell have a falling out. Yeah, different. And it, we are human. And at the end of the day, you would think if people have falling out, would you want? You just ask yourself. A lot of people out there who would judge if that's what happened. How would you respond if you if you did feel betrayed? Whether it's right or wrong, but if you did feel betrayed, and I'm conjecturing here, but I'm trying to read between the lines. If you did feel betrayed, how would you respond? Would you want a guy like you'd be like, man, that's messed up. I looked out for that guy. See, I'm a big, you know, we go back to like everybody has their code. I always think like the, your code is your is one of your most important things. And you still, you know, it's constantly evolving and flexible. What's our code? Like what kind of person do we really want to be? Not just what do we want, but what's the code we're going to be faithful to to get there? And that's hard because it's harder, you know, when you look at the long term, you want to do things the right way. It's a longer road. That's the truth in this world. You know, the shortcuts, you take a risk. Shortcut, maybe you get there quicker, maybe you stay. Shortcut, maybe it blows up on you too. Yeah. Right. Long term, it's safe. You know, like my buddy said, you know, um, it's 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 safer. Right. You build it the right way. You build a foundation the right way. So for me, um, what's your code? And apparently, if if what he's saying is true, if it's true, Dana White didn't like his code. He didn't like. He, maybe he thought he was betrayed. Yeah. And you can't. This is the thing, Mike. This is the thing. I told you where I fall in the media. I'm going to let almost all the media in. I'm not saying I wouldn't have a guy that I didn't like. You know, I'm not saying I wouldn't, in the, but generally my philosophy is different as a journalist. Let him in. I'd let him in. I like Ariel Hawani. I respect Ariel, but get over your sense of entitlement. That's what I would say. Wow. Get over your sense of entitlement. And I am pro-journalist, but, and I would credential you, but if it's true that Dana White doesn't want to, oh, well, you're not entitled. Stop acting like it. Jumping to the UFC, but really MMA, your time in this sport. We've been in for over a decade plus, right? Yeah. This pre-tough one, you know, era. How have you seen the sport change over the last decade or so? Because you said it was 06 or 08 that you started working four days. Yeah, I've been UFC. around it since about 2002, so about 15 years. About 15 years. And when did the UFC, Zufa bought it in 2003? I believe it was 2001, 2001, January 2001. Okay, January 2001. 
How has the sport changed over the last decade or so? Because we see it's the advent of, of Conor McGregor making what? I heard 40 million, 60 million, 80 million, upwards of $100 million in split with the UFC for this fight. That's the highest payday ever for a mixed martial artist, for sure. Conor might have the highest current payday for a mixed martial artist. I've heard somewhere circa 15 to 18K for his last fight. Who? Conor. 18K? 18, sorry, 18 million, 18 million, 15. Yeah, like, no. yeah, sorry, no, Connor Connor, ain't getting off with he's like, not getting off. He's not getting off the chair for 18 No, man. of course. So sorry for that. He's not getting off his bike. I'm sorry. His bike is he's, everywhere now on of Instagram. Course. I don't know. He's got, he, he's an interesting guy. His, like his, body, his body is just, he, you know, Jordan oh. used to have the silhouette. Jordan had the silhouette, Air Jordan, whatever. Yeah. He should just silhouette his little weird, that weird little frame he has. That You know, he's like three-fourths legs. He, he just needs, he's got, he's such a, he's such a unique guy, unique build. He's unique in, in a lot of ways. And he's half leprechaun too, and, <laughs> and he is. He's lucky. He's that a lucky dethroned guy. shirt of him in the early days. The I don't know. It's it's the, the classic Irish boxing pose on like a dethroned shirt yeah. when he first got is into the like game. Yeah, with, with the up, old school knuckles, knuckles up to this guy. Man, it looked great. You know, it was iconic. Yeah. Um, but the, the arc of the sport over the last ten years or so, how has the business changed? I mean, I've watched many revisions of the sport every six months to three years it changes itself completely you know i used to watch the waves of athletes because i was in i was a head strength coach at team quest in 2004 back when randy couture was still the man he i think this was right before he went out there and beat tito dan henderson had the belt over and pride evan tanner rest in peace was still alive and completing middleweight champion of the world Lindlin was still running around chael son and hadn't even I don't think fought off the regional level kind of in those days. So you've seen the error of the greats come and go, then the next wave behind them, then the next wave. And now here's the the fourth wave of the, the Connor McGregor kind of error um, from this is just my little time into it. And then prior to that, there was, you know, the, the hoist Gracies and such. How have you seen the, it's kind of a multi-part question that we can, we can unbox here slowly. The concept or the athlete themselves, the perception or the perspective of the athlete and also the genetic pool, the type of athlete that's being attracted to the sport. The business model has changed dramatically. The era of the, the Reebok deal, which is shit. You know, I, I think the Reebok deal is terrible. And I know many sides, you know, around the Reebok deal. Under Armour was, was, the, was the right deal. That was a great partner for them. I, that's what I was rooting for. And Would have been. Under Armour, yeah. You know, do you know the financials behind what it was? Was it similar financial exchange, just a different logo? Different I was culture. told an interesting story about that, and I don't know. I I, don't, I shouldn't say it because I don't know how factual it was. It's all alleged, but yeah, we can make up shit. Here. Anyway, what I was alleged, you no, know, no. What I what I was told is, I guess Under Armour was was going to be the deal, but something had happened where Under Armour was trying to woo another athlete. I was told, and this was secondhand, but um. I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. But anyway, there were some dominoes that fell where I guess Under Armour was very interested in the deal. Yeah. But um, they had another athlete they were trying to sign. And uh, maybe I don't know if that meant that they had to hold up some money for that athlete. And maybe, you know, the one thing that's clear is that, you know, a buddy of mine had told me before they, before they, they actually sold this thing, he said, because um, I was saying even, even uh, you know, a year and a half before they sold this thing. I mean, I remember being on the phone with a buddy of mine and I was like, look, they're going to, I guarantee you within three years, they'll sell this thing. And then, and so that was my feeling, you know, this is... Once a, they signed. Yeah, no. The, Once the, they put no, 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 Reebok no, no, in. No, I mean, no, even... Be, 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 right. Well... Sorry, okay. So the re- rewinding, I'll, I'll tie it all together in a second. But 
a year and a half ago, before the deal was even done, before the UFC sold, I was on the phone with a friend and I said, and I didn't have any inside information. I just said, you know, the, you know, I, I had talked with a, another friend too, who was a forensic accountant friend who knew, you know, worked on Wall Street and did big things. And he's like, look, I'm telling you, Frank, everything they're doing is designed to sell this thing. He's just looking at it. Like, I'm telling you, they're doing this, this, this piece, the sponsor piece, whatever. Yep. It's designed to, to, to sell it, you know, drive up the value and sell it. And I had felt that myself. But when I heard my forensic accountant friend say, I'm like, oh, well, now, you know, and this guy's done big deals, venture capitalists, whatever. So I'm like, yeah, he's right. So it didn't surprise me that they sold it. And that was an important piece. And I think that this is me conjecturing, by the way. This is just me as regular Joe fan, Frank, not Frank, the former UFC employee, but Frank, the fight fan, Frank, the guy who does try to research things. But I was looking at it like, okay, if they didn't do the Under Armour deal, because to me, the Under Armour deal made the most sense. They're Under Armour. They do killer. They do great gear. Under Armour's gear is on point. It's got credibility. They are they are pioneers. They're gaining ground on Nike. Crazy. I mean, they're yeah. seven billion a year in revenue. The, the Under Armour story is crazy. These guys are on fire, and and I know there had been a lot of meetings between them. So it made the most sense. And for it not to happen, I don't think you know. Just me. I don't. I think Under Armour wanted the deal. I just think the time wasn't right. And maybe this is just me. Maybe I invite somebody to, out there who knows better than me, Barbara. But maybe. They, the UFC was like, no, we got to get a deal now because we're looking at this thing. You know, we want to sell this thing. There's a, you know, Goldman Sachs, all these forensic accountants and all have to do all the, when Goldman Sachs and them come in, they analyze the numbers. That's like a more than 12 month thing. So you got to have a lot of pieces in place. You don't just get a sponsored deal and then sell it the next month. Sure. It doesn't work like that. So maybe I'm just thinking in my head because the Under Armour deal made the most sense Maybe it was, yeah, Under Armour loves it, we love it, but the timing's not going to work because we're looking at this. That seems to make sense to me. I could be totally wrong, but just in my head right now, that's kind of how I look at it. Because I'm like, man, the Under Armour deal, Under Armour and UFC, perfect partners, man. That's that's just such a harmonious relationship, and it didn't happen. Lots of, uh, I've I've had some back channel conversations, too, in the outside world, the world far outside of MMA, but those in the business industry and the the peripheral fitness industry who all say that Reebok has lost more on not just the UFC deal, the UFC deal, but also the CrossFit deal, that CrossFit and the UFC deal have completely hamstrung their business because it created an elitist mentality and perception of their clothes. So they found the rank and file, the regular person fall away from purchasing Reebok in solidarity for for the fighters, but also in turning their nose up at the CrossFit culture. They're not going to yeah, go buy in, the Nanos. Fairness, they're going to get the Nike, whatever the hell. Yeah, but in fairness, Mike, I mean, and I, I'm, I'm being very candid here. I mean, Under Armour makes much better gear. Oh, I'm in. I love Under Armour. And even shoes. It, yeah. uh, Under Armour, last I looked last year, Under Armour only 3% of their sales, of their revenue, is t shoes? Is uh, I'm sorry. Is um, our our tennis shoes three percent? Which is amazing. They they're gaining the ground on Nike that they do yeah. with only three percent. Ten. What's going to happen when they sell ten percent or fifteen percent? I mean, they're a, a Goliath. They're a sleeping giant. They're a Goliath, right? Yeah. But my point is, these guys make great product. And when and I'm sorry, Reebok, but this is going back to my childhood. 
it's just it just doesn't have the imagination. It doesn't have the ethos. It doesn't have the fire. It doesn't have the cr- street cred. It just doesn't have the innovation behind it. What they're doing in Under Armour is working. They're gaining ground on everybody. Nike's got to be what what Nike what Nike what Nike's he's watching these guys like these guys are coming quick. Where did they come from? Reebok is primarily a shoe company. It seems to be when you say Reebok, you picture yeah, look, shoes I don't, immediately. I, when me, I hear me, Under Armour, I picture dry fear. I picture wearables. I don't picture Under Armour sneakers, although I know that they do have them. I picture apparel to go and train or gear to go and train with backpacks and yeah. water, you know, um, uh, waterproof. I'm not blaming the UFC, gear. by the way. No, I'm, I'm not blaming. UFC Shit. was smart to take the. I mean, UFC you got, got four point two billion. Deal. Hell yeah, bro! You con- congrats. Yeah. You guys did it. You you brought in a major sponsor. It's a big name. Well done. UFC did. You know they for them. It worked out great, and so. But I'm just saying, again, Reebok. You got to look at the at the at the at what you're producing, and in my opinion, just you know, step up, step up the game. And I believe that that would um, probably move more product. Probably, yeah. And uh, you know, I look at what the Reebok deal great for the UFC principles inside, great for the sale. You know. Yeah. But not good for the industry, not good for the MMA industry as a whole, because how many companies have you seen struggle and go belly up that were cutting checks to athletes, that were employing people, that were paying bills of many people on the peripheral aspect of the industry? And I can name 20 or 50 people just I'm friends with that had large multimillion dollar businesses that are inside the MMA sphere. And now they're gone in completely different industries because mm-hmm. that dried up through the Reebok deal. And that's, again, that's the UFC's right to do. So I'm not complaining or even criticizing the UFC for it. But at the same time, there is a very discernible negative aspect to that deal. And some people, I think Joe Lazan came out recently, and he's kind of bagging on the athletes for bagging on the Reebok deal. And I find that to be rather disingenuous because I believe Joe lives up in that area and he has a deeper relationship outside of the show money that Reebok pays him based upon his tier, and he's at the higher mm-hmm. tier anyway, right? So he's got like twenty some bites. He's got so he's getting the twenty grand every time he shows up, and then you so we see him popping around. And I, I don't know for sure. Maybe Joe can chime in on this, but I think he's got a, a side deal with Reebok also. So that's that's something to be but considered. Look, 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 that's look, not for the majority but, of the athletes. But almost th- all. this is the thing, Mike, and this is this is a wake up call for you know. It's like so you want to be an MMA fighter. The reality is, I've been around this fight game 31 years, and the reality is 98% of the fighters in boxing and MMA, within a couple years, you're going to have nothing. That's the reality. You're fighting for a dangling carrot of 2%. You see the Conor McGregor's. The Conor McGregor is going to make MMA more popular. There will be more kids who grow up and want to be an MMA fighter because of the the prospect of making money. But it's still going to be sort of the 2% model. The reality is, whether Dana White, and I'm all for fighters getting paid more, but whether they start paying a lot of guys, whatever, tons of money, whatever, even in boxing, it's not going to be spread out that way. 
Listen, there's more money in jiu-jitsu right now for the average jiu-jitsu black belt than there is for MMA fighter by far. Wow. And most of you don't know that, but you need to pay attention. By far. Like there's what? there's tons of jujitsu there's tons of jujitsu black belts now. There's dozens of them making seven figures a year. Dozens of them. Do it just teaching seminars and doing some tournaments. Seminars, doing online stuff. I mean, the the, the, the Gracie brothers there and, and you know Horian Gracie's kids. Wow. Those guys are making seven figures off of Gracie online. Whatever. I mean, look, Henzo Gracie is 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 you know is is, sure. is he's you know he's he's like the godfather out in New York. He is he's killing it. He's doing really well. Robert Drysdale, my guy's doing well. There's a lot of them doing really. Hicks and Gracie's there everywhere, Hickson. rightfully yep. so. He's making you know, uh, you know I got an athlete I work with who's world class. He's twenty. He's making six figures in jujitsu. Wow. He's making six figures. It's a smarter play, and you're like, oh, you don't get punched in the face. Yeah, they're they're making Smart. more money and not getting punched in the face. <laughs> I five, right? So, listen, understand. You can ventilate on the Dana Whites all you want, but understand that it's a loser's bet to begin with. When you come in this space, there's a two percent chance that you walk with any money that would justify what you just did. Now, if you want to do it for it for your soul and whatever, and that's great. But if you're getting in it to be rich, you're crazy. You're crazy because there's only there's only about thirty of them, or forty of them, that can say you know. Now, if you can take some of your money from UFC and you can use that money, you're you're a good fighter, but you're not a great one, and you, you have a ten year. You're lucky enough to have a ten year career like an Evan Dunham, but you're doing things like your own gym. You start up a gym, whatever. Maybe you get some good sponsors that are with you long term. You could be comfortable. Yeah, you know, but you better be durable enough to stay in for ten. You ever, you ever win fights? Don't go on a four fight losing streak. Evan's been there for ten years now. Been there a long time. That guy's a grinder, banger. Close. I trained with him, boy. He's he's a, he's a, he's a rough one. He's a stud. He I knew Evan from the Oregon days. He's an Oregon kid. So yeah, when I was up is, at man. Quest, he was there, hard nosed, beating everybody. Yeah, that you wouldn't pick him out of a bar and say, hard-nosed. "Yeah, don't fuck with that guy," but that guy will fuck you up. Hard nosed dude. Yeah, trained with him for for many years and and uh, a lot of respect. And he's doing it right. You know, he's got his gym, his Dunham Jiu Jitsu here in yep. Vegas. They do very well. You know, it's been around, I think, two, three years. Yeah, I remember when and they rolled out the mats. growing and growing and growing, and he's got that steady stream, you know, yep. monthly. And that's the way to do it. The, the truth is, most people out there want to train jiu-jitsu more than MMA because they don't want to be punched in the face. Most yeah. people most people want their kids in that, even though people, yeah, they'll sign their kid up for MMA, but but most people don't want their, parent, their kid to be punched in the face in practice. So the jiu-jitsu thing is always going to be more appealing. And so you, you know... You better have a pretty good plan if your goal is to be rich and successful. And if you think fighting is the path to that, worst, I think you're crazy. Worst decision ever. I think you're crazy. And the average, the, the best, the cream of the crop, the top 20% of MMA, I'd say I don't even know that there are 20% of MMA athletes that can make um, middle class, upper middle class living above 50 to 100K for more than five years in a row. As a result of their MMA career, I don't know that you could say that of the those yeah. professional competing in the top shows, the Bellators, the UFCs, which are, are pretty much the top shows right now. And I've worked with most of them. You know, I've worked with over 200 UFC athletes, so I know their finances, I know their house, I know the cars they drive, I know what their bill situation looks like. I know when it's you know kind of not buying the organic of that one because we're going to save the money. These are top guys that are fighting on the top top four slots of the card that are challenging 
living a challenged life like that, getting punched in the face with no guarantee of retirement. And I want to say, preface this with, they're independent contractors, right? They're not employees. They sign the contract. They know exactly what that is. Therefore, it's up to them to self-insure for retirement. And you do that through investments. I'm not going to... This isn't an investment show, although we are going to have on the a, thing is, Mike, a gentleman no, to nobody, break this down. Nobody is... This is the thing. Nobody... I'm pro fighter. Hundred, I'm, right? I wish, I wish I had been a young, this broke. The sport had broken on my watch, and I was a 19, 20 year old kid, or I could have been yeah. training at 12, 13. But nobody's making you fight. Yeah. Nobody is making you. You're in America. You can do anything you want. Yep. This is the. This is the larger question. This is that's, what it's part. It's an entitlement mentality. No. Yeah. The, and the, I'm not hate. I yes. love the fighters, and I fought, but it's an entitlement to think that the sport owes you because you signed the contract and nobody says that you have to go into this line of work. When you're a smart person, you can be an accountant, a banker. You can open up your own weed shop, whatever it is. I've been writing music and singing since I was a kid and nobody's ever signed me to a 60. Now, maybe it's because I suck. Maybe I'm actually really good. And whatever reason, I didn't play ball. But at the end of the day, nobody owes me. You know, Columbia doesn't owe me, whatever. Sony doesn't owe me a contract. And so this is the larger issue. And I I really want to make this point and drive this point home. I am pro-fighter. The fighters spill their blood. We wouldn't have the sport without the great fights. The fighters have made this as well what it is. They have, you know, without the fighters, this could not have been done, right? And they give everything, Absolutely. and they are, they are the most respected in the whole bunch. It's the fighters. But we need to understand when we criticize the model, the business models of a company like the UFC, we need to under we need to take a hard look. Like go away. It amazes me how people get so upset about the UFC. And there's other things in our country, other companies doing the same thing, and nobody gets route nobody gets router up about the Federal Reserve and the way money is even created, the fiat money system. People get so forget about UFC guys. Yeah. You, this is Absolutely. we are we are a capitalist cutthroat culture and this is legal. If you really want to make a difference, stop railing against the UFC and start going beyond as a country and say we want a different model then. If you want a different model, the UFC is simply doing what capitalist US companies have done forever and ever. That's what they're doing. It doesn't make it right. But I'm saying as a nation, we need to say, is that what we want? And if we as a nation wake up and start, and people really start caring about it, and if they start ventilating and expressing and protesting on a larger scale against the system in general, then you can have the change. And I'm sure the UFC and plenty of other companies will change accordingly. But right now, we have a dog-eat-dog capitalism in this country. That's what it is. And it's... What are you worth? You're worth whatever I can get you at. It doesn't, there is no, it's unfair. It's like, dude, I just did that. You're giving me a thousand bucks. It's unfair, but it's capitalism. It's, I I can get it. What is that? What is that painting worth? That painting, how do you sell a million dollar painting? You convince one person that it's worth a million dollars. And at that moment, it's worth a million. 10,000 people could walk by the painting, snub their nose at it. It's horrible. It's this, it's this. One exotically rich person, whatever. That's incredible. There's only one of them too. Oh, it's worth a million. It's worth five million. You are worth what somebody is willing to pay. It's unfortunate. I just bled. I'm going to the emergency room. I get it. 
But it is the form of capitalism that we've accepted in this country, and it's dog-eat-dog. I don't like it. I like the Norwegian model. I like the Norwegian model where there's a high socialist, like everybody's pretty much middle class, and if you want to be rich, you can be rich. You want to do extra, you can be extra. They produce, this is as of like four or five years ago, Norway produced more millionaires per capita than anybody. And they were still had these socialist principles and ideals underneath. Oh, but we're a lot bigger than them, whatever. Well... There are better ways to do it, but it's as a country, as a nation, we're picking on the UFC for doing, this is what viable elite companies do in our country. It's the model. It's how you get rich. Do I like all of it? No. Do you? They might not even, but it's what you do to keep advantages over your competitors. It doesn't make sense to most people who don't have to look at stat sheets and bottom lines and revenue every year. It doesn't make sense. But most of us don't bury our heads in that and look at it. Most of us aren't as paranoid of like companies that can be big and then they go under or they lose their market share. It happens in tons of industries. They're trying to do their best so that doesn't happen to them. And we're like, oh, well, that looks ugly, whatever. Yeah, some of it does look ugly. If you and I run a business, Mike, if we make, and anybody out there listening, and we're like, I want to make $100 million, I want to make $200 million. When you try to make that, two, for, the, for the small few, the decimal that are going to make that $150, $200 million, when you start getting there, you're going to have to do, you're going to have to make some decisions. They'll be legal, but you're going to have to make some decisions. You're going to be, wow, I, I thought I would be more generous than that. Because you're going to have to watch every dollar. Now, like I said, the flip side of that, the Dana that people don't know, the Lorenzo that people don't know, is these guys do... They do balance the scales on other ends, and they give a lot of money to a lot of causes. Dana White literally is the most generous person I've ever been around. That's literally the truth. I'm not, oh, you're being a homer, you're being whatever. Dana White hasn't written me a check in, in five years, you know? He hasn't written me a check in five I've never taken a dime from UFC in five years. I have no reason. Most generous guy I've ever been around. Wow. From a big heart, in the same way he can go against you. So it's not a perfect system. But we need to look as a society, though, and say, what are, we, what are we allowing and what are we behind as a society? Like, what are the ways that we're letting businesses operate and what is unfair? And we need to, you know, there needs to be that discussion. More people need to become aware and thinkers and readers and really dig your head in there instead of worrying about UFC. There's way bigger. Start worrying about the whole system. Yeah, absolutely. Most people, they get their head so deep in the pop culture they forget about their own life, their own reality. They're worried about what Conor McGregor or Gegard Musashi is getting paid. What are they getting paid? How long are they standing on that line, supply line, or whatever it is, under the car, twisting the wrench to get paid whatever, to go home to take care of their kids, their house, their whatever the hell it is, pay off the school debt, the credit cards, and all that other bullshit. And they're screaming at the fighters. What's to stop more. them, Mike, the fighters? What's to stop the fighters from unionizing? The reason that they can't the reason that they can't unionize the reason they haven't unionized is not the is not the UFC's fault. Yeah. It's not. It's it's for the fighters out there listening. I love you guys, but if you're mad there's not a fighters union, it's on you guys. There was nothing to stop you guys from unionizing. The reason you haven't unionized is you need the top thirty to forty fighters to be part of what you do. Yeah, and they're 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 well taken care of. Yeah, they're well taken care of. And and you need some of them to jump ship and be with you. And you you need I mean, I know you saw Donald and, and Dillashaw and and Kane, but but there's five hundred or whatever. Last I looked, five hundred or so fighters on the whole roster. I mean, go like there's nothing to stop you guys. NBA did it, Major League Baseball did it. If yep. that's the course 
And that's the right course. Would you get more? You absolutely would. But that's on you guys to figure out how to do that. Now, I personally think it's inevitable that there will be a union. I think that any smart person probably thinks that. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And will fighters get more uh, protections and things like that? Yes, they will. But that's them. Now that's them using their power. You know, there, there is an answer. You say, well, it swung too far to UFC. But yeah, it's because you guys haven't exercised your power. You haven't gotten it together. You're, you know, it's like saying, hey, I'm weak because he's too strong. The other guy's too strong. Yeah. No, I'm weak because I'm not, I don't realize my own power. Yeah. You're weak because you, you know, you're blind. You guys, you guys have a lot of power. You have a lot of collective power. You just don't want to bite down on the bullet for a year of not fighting or whatever. And, and standing and on that line, yeah. right? Stand, yeah. It's hard for me to get my mind around the complaints of some of the athletes who make the decision to progress into the industry knowing exactly how it is. Everybody knows what the pay rates are. We knew five years ago. We knew 10 years ago. We know right now what the pay rates are. We know what the, the league minimum is essentially in the UFC. It's 10 and 10. You get into the UFC, you're nobody special. Essentially, you're good enough to get there. You're making 10 and 10. It's what's the NFL, 375 or 400 to be on the practice teams or whatever, whatever that number is. You know that's what it is going into it. And then you are surprised when you're at fight two or fight three. And now you're on 14 and 14 or 16 and 16. And you're complaining let about me, I let only me tell you. Let me tell you the irony of this. And I hope there's a lot of journal. I hope some journalists do listen to this. Let me tell you the irony. I love it. The dripping irony of this. You know, one of the most poorly paid professionals Professions in the world? Strength coach. It's <laughs> <laughs> a pretty good guess. <laughs> MMA strength coach by far. <laughs> MMA coach, period. But continue. One of the most poorly paid professions is writing. Right. It is a talent that's not appreciated. You're, you try to go out there and get a dollar a word or 50 cents a word. It's slim pickings. And so all of these holier-than-thou journalists and everybody telling us, guess what? The cap, the dog-eat-dog capitalism is alive and kicking. It's been that way for a long time in writing and in the arts. The starving artist sure. is the norm. The starving artist is the norm. Even the starving good artist is the norm. Van Gogh never sold. I think he sold the most expensive painting Van Gogh sold in his life was like $1,200. He sold like three paintings in his life. He had a couple other things like that were that were insignificant. Go look at the most expensive paintings in the world now. Go look at the list. Wow. It's Van Gogh's all over the list. 180 million, 120 million, 80 million dollars, 20 million dollar Van Gogh. Tons of Van Goghs. The guy was lucky when he sold one of his paintings was bought by his brother. Hmm. He was lucky when somebody bought I think I think his brother might have been a 1200 dollar one. You know, so starving artist. They're everywhere. It's not the, the, the UFC. Why? Because they can. Why are most of these media outlets... I wrote, I wrote something I'm not going to say, but for a major media outlet, you know, a couple years ago. And the low price that they, that they paid blew me away. Well, that's just what we pay freelancers. We don't have it in the budget. And this is a normal conversation so, with them. Yeah. And, it's, and of course, I wanted it for the prestige, not for the money. Yeah. But it blew me away how little money that was a few years ago with a major, major outlet. And now, maybe I just had too much entitlement, but that's the way it is. Why do they do that? Because they can. Because why? Because there's a lot of, 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 um, of writers and only so many major outlets, only a few of them. So there's a long line of us that will do it 
for a hundred bucks, That's 50 it. bucks. One major MMA outlet, not a major, one major MMA outlet was 20 bucks, 20, 25 bucks a story. Insanity. Wow. Another, um, yeah, while, while I'm doing this, this was another MMA, uh, another major MMA outlet. 50 bucks a story. Major. 50 bucks. 50 a story. bucks a story. How many words is it? Now, mind you, I was making some really good, you know, in journalism. I've never been rich in journalism. I've never been upper class in journalism, but I've been very comfortably middle class. Yeah. You know, you could realistically make, if you're really good at what we do, you could realistically make, you know, it's like a teacher. You can make 65, 75, 80. Wow. If you really hustle, you can make more than that with freelance and stuff. But it's slim pickings. It's hard. The people that will pay you, there's not a lot of them. And so it's just the fighting has the same problem. You're Identical. a starving artist. Fighting. There's too many guys that want to make that walk just to be seen on TV, just to be somebody, yeah. just to walk into the arena. Even if it's a quarter full on a Saturday night on a UFC, guy from small town, whatever, just to make that walk. And have that moment and be most of these people. Why do people want to be fighters anyway? Why? Why? Because they don't, a lot of times, they don't have anything else where they're going to get the recognition. They're not going to be a banker. They're not going to be a whatever. This is their time. This is their one thing. That's why they'll risk it. Because look, I just want to be somebody. I just want a moment. I just want a a moment where all eyes are on me, right? I just want a chance. And if you say a thousand for 500, they'll do it. If it wasn't 10 and 10, like you were just saying, UFC pretty much did that voluntarily or whatever, or maybe it was because of bad press, whatever. But they don't have to do it because they could fill that card with guys that will get after it for two and two. They're actually paying more in this case for whatever reason, PR, whatever. They're paying more because there's a long line of solid, hungry fighters that are like, I just want I just want my moment. There's tons of them. And that drives prices down, folks. The same way that good writing, I consider myself a very good writer, but it drives prices down. Because yeah. there's some there's not a lot of outlets to write for that are major, that are prestigious. And there's a ton of writers. One of my jobs in Utah years ago when I first moved west from the East Coast, guy said, I said, How many applicants were there? It was a daily newspaper in Utah, second biggest. Wow. He said there were over five hundred applicants. For one job. Bam. So why aren't you guys paying 100000 for the writer? We don't have to. Yeah. We don't have to. Why would we? Would you overpay for a painting? If you could get a painting for five bucks, would you pay 100 for it? Yeah. Because they can. Is it fair when you look at it? It's like, no, something's wrong here. This guy just spilled his guts. He went to the hospital. Something's wrong. I agree. It's a disconnect. Fighting should maybe be the. It's like teaching. Fighting should maybe be the most expensive paid profession. Oh, you just maybe it up should. A great point. It's like teaching, right? Yeah. Teachers. It's we have this in our society, though, folks. And you're going to drive yourself crazy trying to make sense of it. It's like te- the great teachers. Is a great teacher worth sixty? They're worth way more. Way more. Of course, fighters. Look, in my opinion, in my little utopia, in my head, fighters be like, look, who's giving the most? Who's man, fighters be among the highest paid? Fighter, I pay fighters more than bankers. I'd pay him more than NBA players. Yeah, right? I'd pay him definitely more than NBA Dude, players. Dude, just making, what, $20, exactly. $40 million? Dollars? Are you crazy? Exactly. To play basketball? So Great. I'm all for that in the fantasy land in my head. I'm all for it, man. You guys are are getting after it, working hard. It's mentally toughest athletes, risking the most. You know, it's, yeah. man, you know, if life was fair, then you'd be the high, you'd be among the highest paid. But guess what? And I wrote this in a Chael Sutton story. You know, we learn these truths at a young age. Yeah. 
Life's not fair. Life's not fair. It's not fair. And our system, our capitalist system, is not fair. It's just a system, and it works for some people. There's winners in it, and there's losers with it. And there's and and the way the loser thing works is, I, look, I've been a starving artist too, guys. So I'm I'm picking on myself too. I've felt entitled to. I like I do really good work. I've got 22 year track record. I whatever. How come people aren't? You know, my phone didn't ring for a couple years. Well, how come not? I've got a black. Who else has a black belt? I'm this. I'm that. Well, yeah. guess what, Frank? Nobody owes you nothing. Yeah. That's why. Nobody owes you nothing. You eat what you kill in, in this in this world. You know, you eat what you kill. You got to go out. You want it, go get it. You know, people didn't notice how talented I was at whatever. Well, it's my fault. It's my responsibility to change that. It's my responsibility to change my vibration, my energy, my inner. It's my responsibility to choose my thoughts more carefully. It's my responsibility to stop making excuses. You want to be an elite fighter? Look at Conor McGregor. I mean, this guy, Irish guy, right? I mean... First of all, the Irish guys, these guys are standing on bar stools at a young age, standing up in front of everybody telling stories with punchlines. So he's born, you know, these guys are natural storytellers. They're great with the spoken word. They're characters. I mean, Conor McGregor, you know, you know, either be that interesting or, or whoop that much butt, guys. I don't know. I mean, there's no entitlement. There's guys that are just as good a fighter as Connor, and they're not going to make the money. Is it fair? There's better no, fighters it's not. Than, that, yeah. than him, no doubt. But life is not fair, guys. Stop trying to make it fair. It's not fair. Yeah. It's like you're going to drive yourself crazy, and you look at, like, I was looking at Jay Gordon Musasi, and I love Connor, by yeah. the way. We both love Connor. I mean, I Absolutely. love Connor. But Connor's there's someone great. walking around. Jay Gordon Musasi's resume is, is, is better than Connor. Jay yeah. Gordon, who just signed with Bellator, it's better. Jagard Musasi's a beast, and Connor is a beast. But I'm like Jagard Musasi's like is like two and a half. His resume is two and a half times as long. Yeah. He lined them up. Yeah, right. Jagard Musasi is not. Connor's going to be worth 150 million, 200 million in in two or three years between sponsorships, whatever. Yep. And he, and I wouldn't count him with the way he's manifest with his law of attraction. I wouldn't count this guy out to be a billionaire. Yeah, he's got money on his mind, right? But it's not it's not fair, guys. You can do that you can play this game, this fairness game in all your life, and it's gonna drive you crazy. Because life is not fair. You're gonna see, I can show you fighters that are just as good. I can show you artists, I can show you writers that are just as good. I can show you singers that are just as good as this one. And one singer's poor and one is worth crazy, mind blowing amounts of money. Yeah. It's opportunity. Yeah. It's creating opportunity. It's not sitting back and waiting for opportunity. And this is a disconnect. And, you know, we've used fighters as our muse here in this conversation, but it applies to everybody, everybody listening, no matter what it is, because we all want more. We all maybe need a little something more. Maybe it's just more security. Maybe it is retirement. Maybe you're taking the bus every day and you want a car to get back and forth. But what opportunity are you creating for yourself? What opportunities are you trying to take advantage of? I did a, a YouTube video today. It was prompted by a tweet I put out yesterday. So when I, I, I quoted, I just said, um, people eat poorly because they shop poorly. I thought that was pretty self-explanatory. A young man comes back and he says, hey, what happens if you're actually poor? I said, poor is a mentality. You need to tirelessly eliminate your excesses and tirelessly create abundance. That's what your focus needs to be. Poor is just a temporary state, or poverty is a temporary state surrounding. Being poor is a mentality. That was really the thing. And I got some, some, I got some you know, good interaction, but I got more than one person that say, this is the most disgusting thing. You should be ashamed of yourself. I'm unfollowing you. I'm blocking you. Yeah. How dare you? So I, that, that had me follow up because I didn't understand that at first. 
And then I scrolled through their their social feeds, and I kind of understood the things that they say, their thoughts, the things that they retweet, and some of the personalities. And there was a commonality amongst them. And it was this entitlement mentality that those who have some sort of success are lucky or cheat or stole or did in some way deserve it. And to kind of glorify the criticism of other people, that's kind of the way. So sit on your couch and talk shit about everybody else who maybe is on TV or in the newspaper or on the magazine instead of getting out there yourself. And hey, maybe, maybe you should at least try and sell the magazine, go door to door just as a way to create opportunity. So I threw a YouTube video up today going deeper and explaining it's the mentality. And when I work with these athletes, these athletes in many ways are much more talented than me. They have much more opportunity than I do or have ever had, yet they don't have the same work ethic. They don't see the world the same way. They sit back and complain that they don't have enough sponsors, that they don't have enough speaking appearances, that they're not getting enough money from the organization, that you know they're other issues that maybe I shouldn't bring out to, to identify, but they're, they're making these complaints instead of getting out there and doing it and creating it. And you look at the few small, well, maybe like a Carlos Condit. Carlos Condit is one of the more successful athletes yeah. inside the sport. Great guy. Carlos Condit is not the richest athlete in the world of MMA. He's not on the list of the top 30 or 40. But he has a plan B because he's smart. You know, Dad was chief of staff there to the governor in, in yep. New Mexico, and he, he's going to do well, I'm sure, whatever he wants to do. He's got, went and got his real estate license. Yeah. He's already bought multiple. For the money that he would make, he would buy property. Yeah. He's already a real estate investor who got credentials as a real estate broker. And by the way, if anybody had a right to be like, I deserve this, if somebody did, that guy. That guy. But he never did. You look at his resume. Yeah. Right? I mean, so you look at that, and I look at athletes like Condit, who, who if he fights, it's because he wants to fight, not because he has to fight. He's got other things going on in his world, in his life, and there's a few. It's unfortunately, it's a very small, small list of athletes that I can think of that take that same mentality when we talk about the retirement issue. How many of these athletes are, are contributing to 401ks or a Roth 401ks or IRAs? How many even understand the concept? If fighting is your plan to get rich, then you got about a 2%. I mean, you better have another plan, whatever, whatever your def- definition of rich is, you know, but like, it's like, yes. there should be something. Yeah, rich I mean, isn't $100 million. Yeah. You got to do this, like you're saying, you got to do this because you love it. And it's not going to be fair. Again, you're going to look, even if you make a billion, you're going to look over your shoulder. You're going to see the guy worth 10 billion or the girl worth 10 billion. Yep. And you're going to be like, I'm smarter than them. And I do better work than them. Why is he worth 10? Why is he worth 10 billion? Absolutely. I do what I do better than you. Yep. And it, it's a never ending game. And so, and the blame game is again, the blame game is just disempowering yourself. Look for, look for the ways. I'm not saying that. it's not a perfect system. Like I said, you and I both agree. I mean, I'm watching this crazy NBA money like you are. It's a joke. I'm seeing no guys sense. 12 points, 8 rebounds, signing a $120-some million dollar deal. It's insane. Yeah. Um, How are people not rallying against that? Yeah. You want to talk about elitism, right? They're going after the top 1%. Look at these athletes. No offense to those athletes. Those are people that get paid way more money than these top CEOs of these corporations. People get mad because certain CEOs make, are making $5 million a year and the rank and file employees only, quote, only making maybe 50 or 60 or 80 or whatever livable wage that might be through the, the, the turning of the wrench. Look at what these athletes are making. $20, $40 million per year. Are you fucking, without sponsorships enrolled, like involved? How is that fair? And then we'll, we'll that's a different podcast. But the thing is, if people, like, socialism if people like Fighter A so much, are there ways for them? I mean, whether it be a GoFundMe or whatever, are there ways for them? Buy their T-shirt. Yeah. 
Are there ways for you to say, look, I just watched that guy on the undercard. He made 10 and 10. Yep. And I loved it so much. Is there a way? Maybe there should be a fun. Maybe somebody should have fun. Like, can I go put an extra five bucks and say that guy, maybe he got fighter of the night, but I'll give him, we can all, and then That'd be fun. 10,000 10, people give him five bucks. And so he walks with an extra whatever. And so it's us instead of putting in, I understand the UFC is making a lot of money. They are, yeah. they clearly are. And that's, they're doing what American companies do yeah. and what we expect American companies to do. That's that, right now. And until it, that's changed, that's the way the system is. So again, yeah. I'm not, look, I love the fighters. It's just a wake up call to stay, look, Try to consider if we're going to criticize the companies, we also have to understand the culture and what creates the companies. They're created by a system. They're created it's by a rule system. Basic economics. Exactly. Supply and demand. You've got to understand, right? Start, put on your business cap and think like a business person. And when it's not working for you, you do. I mean, look, I'm not with the UFC anymore. I, I love the UFC. I'm, I, it was the five or six best years of my career working with them. I loved it. I was treated well. But I've moved on to try to do my own thing, to try to build, to try to be a big fish in a little pond, right? And, and so everybody has that right to do. Fighters have that right to do. The fact is, most of these fighters are not going to have long careers. If you no. take, take 100, the, the pool of all the fighters in the world, you know, how many of them are going to fight in the UFC and stay in it for 8, 10 years? Not many. Not many. I can barely think of, you yeah. know, think of very few. I, I, and you better surround yourself with great business people that you trust. 100%. And, you know... It's like I saw I saw one fight. I think it might have been Tony Ferguson and Khabib. Yeah. Um, you know, love Tony. Tony Ferguson's a beast, right? So before that fight, I, I read something on MMA Junkie, I believe, and it was like Ferguson, you know, before the fight was signed or whatever, he's upset because Khabib was making way more money. Yeah. Like way more money. And so he's like, man, I'm doing just as much as Khabib, whatever, and I'm getting ready to fight Khabib, but Khabib's deal is worth way more than mine. Again, I'm quoting MMA junkie on this. So I'm reading that and I'm like, man, you know what? So Ferguson is like, no, let's renegotiate the deal. Well, my thing was in the way I think in scenarios like that, dude, be manager, manager. Yeah. Your manager told you that was a good deal. Your manager, he had a, his manager did more for him than yours did for you. I don't know who your manager is. But in that situation, you might have the best manager in the game. You might. I'm not casting judgment on your manager. But in that particular deal, you ain't mad that you have mad at your manager who told you that that was good money. That was the kind of money you deserved and got and convinced you to sign the deal. So you can look and, you know, it's like too much blame goes there. It's like, wait, wait, you got to take some responsibility in your chain and in your circle because somebody told you that was a good deal. Clearly, Khabib's guy, I think, is Ali. Um, he knew, no, this is the good deal. And he got his client the deal. Yeah. And so stuff like that goes on too, where they're blaming the UFC. But a lot of it is, look, some of these managers are not very good managers and they're getting you a weak deal because they're weak negotiators. Cause they don't even know what the market is yeah. a lot of times. So you gotta, there has to be accountability to other levels too. Who told you that was a good deal? Yeah. And again, Tony Ferguson is a beast. I'm sad we didn't see that fight. Absolutely, um, and you know Tony Ferguson might might be might end up being the champion. Him or could be, but you know because if Connor never comes back. But again, Ferguson is a great guy, a great fighter. But just that particular example, it's like, wait, dude, like, do UFC, UFC, UFC. It's like we want to put all the accountability on big companies, like you were saying. People want to take aim, and we don't look at anything else along the chain and say, no, dude, you were 
you were failed by the people around you too, or you were failed by your own judgment. Yeah. Right? A couple... Uh, you don't like the deal, don't sign a deal. A couple of years ago, I, I made a statement that got a lot of legs behind it, that athletes should fire their managers and hire an attorney at an hourly rate to do contract review, mm-hmm. and they should put more money back into their coaching systems. They should get an agent that works on sponsorships and such. They should have a, an accountant who does their books, handles their finances. They should have maybe a wealth management or a financial planner as a part of their team. They all work. Everybody there works hourly, right? Mm-hmm. I know the majority of coaches, the majority of the famous coaches that you name are on their ass broke. Right, so all the big coaches and the, all the multimillionaire athletes standing in, you know, behind them, that group of, of of coaches, the vast, vast, vast majority, are making low middle class wage if they're lucky, and they're supplementing those wages with a lot of other things. They're teaching privates at their gym with kids who will never fight with girls. They're teaching cardio. That's why I know a lot of guys that don't. A lot of uh, trainers, smart ones, they don't want to work with. Don't want to work. Yet. That's fighters. You know, we get, you know, BJ Penn put some bullshit headlines out there. We get, we make no money on fighters. We lose money on fighters. The amount of time that goes into working with fighters. Now you get, you get a few blessings. You get a few Ronda Rousey's who are very generous. You get a few Carlos Condit's who's very professional and, and very generous. But you get a lot, you get athletes that make more money than them that are not at all. And that money doesn't filter down to their coaches. I know coaches who are sleeping on sofas. And they're in the corners of the world's greatest athletes, multimillionaires who are trying to figure out how the hell they're going to eat next week. And that's the sad state of sport. And I don't know how it is in other sports. I know boxing, boxing's a little more cutthroat. The coaches and managers, the trainers in boxing, right? They take a, a 10 to 30% cut out of the gate. And, yeah. you know, it, it's amazing the money that goes into that. And managers got pissed. You know, Malky Kawa and Brian Butler and, and Ed Suarez and who else? You know, they would see me at different fight weeks. They were told, shit, that's fucking bullshit what you said. And, and uh, Mike uh, oh, over on the East Coast with the Miller brothers. And, you know, they, they've all publicly said shit about it since. And that's bullshit. You should have fucking said that. You know, whatever I say, athletes should, should. I say, hey, what did I say that's wrong? I said, how many? I know. I know each one of you guys. I know your athletes. I work with athletes who fucking work with you. How many of your athletes have you taken from other stables of other management teams that were doing shit? They're like, oh, well, yeah, a lot. I said, okay. So should the athlete have kept that manager? Should they have fired him? Maybe there's a handful. There's outliers and everything. I'm not saying those guys do better jobs. The, the, the Malky Cow gets a shitload of money for his athletes. I know that to be true, regardless of what people say about his abrasive personality. That's just how he rolls. Brian Butler's been doing a great job. He's one of the more professionals I've seen. Ed Source, we know, works for the lot yeah, of Yeah, well, again, I'm not, I'm not, on, not there, there are those. some really good managers out there. And those aren't the ones I was but thinking they're not of. the norm. I'm sorry, they're, they're not, not the norm. The norm. They're, they're not, not the norm. norm. It's there the are some very good ones. They are not the norm. The dude that you went to high school school with who's now quote your manager and he got you some some you know local regional fights and king of the cage and whatnot now he's sitting down at the table with dana white lorenzo fertita negotiating your contract and you walk away and he's telling you yeah this is a good deal he just negotiated with billionaires you know he's not even making 40k a year himself and his, his best year of his entire life no disrespect it's just the truth behind it mm-hmm. and then he's uh, sitting with a uh, you know a Tony Ferguson, not, and that's I don't want to use Tony as an example. He's yep. sitting with a fighter, and he said, "You got a good deal." Fighter and again, looks- I don't know if Tony Tony Ferguson may have a great manager. Yeah, but, he, but uh, publicly, he didn't like the deal. He didn't like the he deal. didn't like the deal. And his equally skilled opponent, equally credentialed opponent, got multiples above. Who got, yeah. who got the bad deal here? And that that was the point that I was making back in those days, which you know you kind of validated in your own way now. It's, you can't get mad at the organization. That's like getting mad at the economy. Yeah. It's supply and demand. The organization, 
Will, and you said earlier, and I, I wanted to jump in. I think this holds val- holds point, holds uh, holds water here. Is what what is what is your worth? Your worth is what you get paid, and I would say even further, your worth is what you'll actually accept. Because if the UFC is offering you 10 and 10 and you think you're worth 50 and 50 and you accept 10 and 10, well, guess what? You just made 10 and 10. I work with some some Hollywood people and I was working with someone high level, big name. We all see him, you know, on on whatever screens we're watching. And they were doing this gig and everything was very lavish and very well paid. And it came out that they're not getting paid to do this other production. They're doing another production. I said, wow, she's like. You're here for X long. You're not getting paid. He's like, well, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm doing this as a favor. They couldn't afford to pay me my rate, and I can't accept anything less than my rate. We can only move it forward. The second I move it backwards, I'm only going to get offers, regardless if they're flying me and my family first class back and forth every weekend. They have the entire, like, roof of this, like, high price. I don't even know what they were spending. It was crazy. Hollywood money is crazy. But the gist of it was I cannot take anything less than my worth and my worth has to constantly grow and improve and having the balls essentially to do that and to stand up to an organization that's paying you 10 and 20 or 50 and 50, whatever it is. If you're saying yes and you think you're worth more, well, you fucked up. Dana didn't fuck up or Coker didn't fuck up or, you know, Rich Franklin or whoever's over at one, they didn't screw up. They're doing their job by their company, by their P&L statement, you messed up, your management team messed up. And I think we all do that. Those listening right now, you might be working at a job you know is below your worth. Now, it's one thing if, well, you need X amount of dollars at the end of the week to pay the bills to keep the lights on. Are you pursuing other opportunities inside that industry, inside that company to maybe move up inside the system, to grow inside the system, or to maybe grow somewhere else completely, or maybe work on the peripheral on the outside, writing some articles or shooting some YouTube videos, whatever the hell it is, selling your own widgets and, widgets and sprockets on the side. Yeah. So, I mean, again, we're just looking at the whole, let's try to look at the whole picture. I certainly hope that things get, like I said, I'd like to see fighters be the highest paid uh, athletes in the world, that means UFC has to get way, 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 way bigger uh, for there to be that money. Yeah. Um, I'd like to see it. But James Hart. It's, it's a young sport, and there's a lot of lessons to be learned, and some of these lessons are to be learned by the fighters themselves and to learn how to think about how to see the whole picture. Like Connor has surrounded himself with people. He's looking at the macro and the micro. He's seeing yeah. the big picture. He's trying to see five years ahead, ten years ahead. They've got a plan, Right. And so a lot of these fighters are just seeing their next fight ahead. They're playing checkers. They're not playing chess. Yep. The Connors, the Floyds, their management team, they're playing speed chess. They're, they're thinking years ahead like big businesses yeah. do, right? Most big businesses, they want to see your three, your five-year plan. Yeah. Be, you know, and I heard even with Olympic athletes, these people, they think in quadrennials. They, Absolutely. They're telling me that. Yep. You know, they think in four-year cycles. And so it's really trying to take a bigger picture approach, surround yourself with um, with the right people. And like you just said, take accountability. What, you know, Mike, the, the, you know, for me, I, I never fought. And some of that is that this, I was, you know, 38, 39 year old guy. By the time there was remotely even a little bit of money yeah. for little fighters, I'm, I'm hundred and, you know, 41 pounds. Uh, but the other thing is that, yeah, I was like, I was making, you know, 72,000, whatever, $71,000 a year. How am I going to go and justify Making a grand that could easily be blown on my hospital, whatever. Hundred percent. You know, a dental, whatever. You get, you know, go get a root canal. It's like you know, twelve hundred bucks. Out of pocket. Yeah. yeah, I couldn't financially justify it. It didn't make sense. So that 
it didn't work, right? It didn't, it, as much as there was a, a, a Spartan, a warrior part of me, it's like, it, does, it makes no sense. And it, by that time, I was smart enough to be rational. And 20-year-old yeah. Frank, angry Frank, Hulk, Hulk Frank didn't think that way. But later at 39, I'm like, wait, this has to make financial sense. Yeah. This has to make sense. And it makes none. Yeah. And so it's just, as an athlete, taking accountability. And like you said, know your worth. And if you feel like you can't get your worth in one area, then make a plan. And maybe even, like I said, maybe sometimes you're knowing your worth is a different, like I do some speech now, I do speeches on pain management, mind jitsu, mind over matter and, and pain management and things. And of all the things that I speak about, that one really resonates with people. We have a chronic pain epidemic in this country. We have sure. all these prescription meds. So people want to know, how can I, you know, alleviate some of my pain without pain meds? Well, Th- that was not on my radar that, that people would, would w- be so interested in that. Yeah. And so you maybe start thinking of, okay, maybe you have to go a little off the beaten path. Maybe some of these fighters, maybe fighting is going to be your thing and it'll be a springboard or get you attention, but maybe that's not where you're going to make money. Maybe you're going to make money somewhere else. Like Condit's going to maybe make most of his money in real estate. I'm sure he'll make right? way more. Connor's probably going to wind up making most of his money in sponsor. I guarantee whatever's next 10 years from now, it'll be movies, it'll be sponsorships, yep. it'll be somewhere else. Yep. Right. I mean, Virgin Airlines, Richard, you know, Branson, Richard Branson's big thing was Virgin Records. Right. Where did he make most of his money in an airline? Because he was on an airline one day. Hmm, Why don't airlines have this? He wasn't an aviator. It's just you, you better start to look in your whole war chest and start to have a plan and start thinking, start playing speech, start looking down the road. And instead of just complaining, 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 because, again, you can do this one of two ways. This is this would be my the way I think. I you can do it with Dana White as an ally, or he's not an ally. Just try to be an ally too. I would. Yeah. I just would. It's their baby. Try to be an ally. Yeah. Like try to be something that's it's gonna work for some. You say, Oh, well, he doesn't they don't care about people. Well, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you go into people and you're like, This guy's a piece of crap and he's a whatever, well, of course, why why would he care to help you then? Yeah. I mean, seriously. They obviously help some people. But if, you're, if your attitude is you're hostile to me and you feel like Frank is this, he's looking to take advantage, he's looking to whatever, why would I want to do? Why would I want to look out for you? Why would I want to do? Yeah. But you never know. It's all about relationships too. Like try to be, do what you can right now where you are. It might not always work long term, but do what you can right now, right where you are to become better, to take a, start looking five years, 10 years. What do I want it to look like? What's the picture? What do I want it to look like? And what do I have to do to get from there to there? And who can help me? Who can make a call? Dana White might make a call for you. He might not pay you $10 million, but he might make a call for you that can get you your product, whatever you're endorsing, whatever down the road. He might be able to make a call that can make you $10 million. Yep. But think ahead. You know, think there's there's different people coming to our lives for different reasons. Maybe you won't make most of your money. 90% of you won't make most of your money in the cage. But maybe you can <laughs> no. use that God as no. a springboard. Maybe you can use that experience. Maybe you can use those connections. Maybe you can use those alliances to go on and make the money that you maybe wanted to make. You just got to look at a big picture. There's a million ways to make a million bucks. Yeah. But if guys are just looking, this is unfair. Yeah, it is unfair, and it ain't going nowhere. The unfairness ain't going anywhere. You'll drive yourself nuts. I hate it, but it'll drive you nuts. And that's what it is. We have to accept yeah. it, though. Most yep. people don't accept it, and those are the ones that are least happy. They won't accept the world as it is, and they want the world to change instead of changing their interaction within the world, knowing how it is. So now you can interact, like you said. You want the, the guy upstairs to pay you a bigger check. Don't call him a fucking asshole. Do something of value. 
do something of value or go and find another guy or you become the guy who actually starts if writing. If most of these people were Dana, they'd be doing the same stuff. If that 100%. was their job and that was their role, they might not be as abrasive behind a mic and as candid as blunt. They would be, there has never been a fight promoter in history who's willingly been like, let me pay you guys 70% of the money. There's never been one. Yeah, I'm going to tell you something. A funny story just hits what you just said. I'm working with an athlete, and they're literally complaining about how much they're not getting paid for this upcoming fight and their value and their worth and this, that. And they have a cleaning lady in the house who doesn't speak any English, and she's awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Like, this is a person who's cleaning everything, just taking the job and just whatever, doing, just doing the job, somebody that you want to be doing the job that, that you hire them to do. And as kind of the end part of the conversation, I'm like, wow, man, that lady just really crushed it, got everything. Because I'm in the kitchen, right? I'm in the, I'm in the kitchen making the mess the entire time, goes in and crushes it. He's like, oh, yeah, guess what? I pay her. I was like, what? And tells me this super, super low rate. I was like, holy shit. And he's like, yeah. Like, kind of like high five to me. And I, I like in that moment, I was thinking like, you just fucking complained that you're worth more and you're complaining the whole time. Here's a lady calling you Mr. and kind of bowing even, scrib- cleaning the grossness that is you and inside your house. And you're winking at me because you're underpaying her, you know, immigrant wages, if you will, half of what a minimum wage would be for that particular job. Maybe $10 an hour to clean the house instead of like 25 or 30, which in that area would be actually the minimum it kind of gives me the wink so what you just said was funny as soon as you you made your point there i picture that exact conversation it's been years since i remember that and that's what it is these exact same people would do the exact same thing which is running their business the way that's in their best interest there's no you know they don't want anything bad to happen to the lady and, and nice Mike, let, let, let me just you know and again just to be critical of myself i mean when i left the ufc um, you know, I'd had a divorce. My son was very sick. Um, I had my addiction to jujitsu. I was training twice a day. Wow. I was getting to become an older athlete. I was, you know, uh, 39, 40 years old. So starting to have a lot more injuries and a lot more. How much longer can I do this? I had money problems. It was really everything. My life, yeah. everything was caving in on my life. And it was a time where I did a lot of introspection, a lot of reading, a lot of hiking, a lot of cycling, uh, what people would call maybe meditation. And um, and I thought, you know, and, it, and initially I was, I was, I was mad in the UFC because I thought, man, I, I remember one time I wanted, I always want, I always felt like I was worth more money. And one time I went into a uh, computer room there. It was a, it was like a, you know, where they had the copiers, copy machines, and there was a job advertised. And that, because they had to, they have certain jobs they have to publicly advertise. So that was the public advertisement in there. And, and it was for a salary. It was a job uh, right on par with mine. And it was for much more money than mine. Wow. So this speaks right to the heart of the fighter thing. And yeah. Like, wow. I was angry. Like, they're really, you know, they're really going to pay. That's way more money than I'm making. And it's and I'm even better at what I do than what that position is. Yeah. And so how is that possible? And so I was angry. And that stayed with me probably for uh, nine, ten months, a year before eventually I parted and the UFC and I parted ways. Um, and that I was resentful. And then when I was not with the UFC anymore and I was... Uh, you know, like I said, I went through my divorce. I had money problems. I was doing all this soul searching. I was, I was low. I was at rock bottom. And 
I realized, again, they, they don't owe you anything, Frank. They gave you, they made you a part of something. You got to see this thing be built. I got to learn. I kind of got like a de facto MBA degree watching these guys do what they sure. did. Sure. They treated me to some great experiences. They let me train jujitsu twice a day. They never said, if I missed a meeting, they let me. They didn't pay me all the money I thought it, but they, I was like, wait, what, what employer would let you be trained in jujitsu twice a day and let you miss meetings? Who would do that? Yeah. They did give me, they gave me a lot of leeway. They gave me latitude. They gave me experiences. They gave me some, some of the MBA thing too. Yeah. Right. So they did give, I did have a lot. I just didn't have the material side of it. So in, in the end, I realized they don't owe me, they don't owe me anything. This is me. I'm just talking about me. Yeah. And I feel oh, like this I love fits, it. Great I feel like this fits perfectly with the sure. fighters. Like, look, they don't owe you anything. They, you know, you did a job, they could replace you for, they probably could have hired someone for cheaper than I was doing. Maybe it wouldn't have been as good, but most people won't know the difference. Most people don't know the difference between really good and kind of good. Most people don't know the difference. Um, So that really changed my perspective. The way that I look back now, I look at it with, I really genuine gratitude where like I was very lucky to be there. I was very lucky to have the relationships, including all the fighters who were great and to train with fighters and pick their brains. You know, these are the mentally toughest. These are the, you know, my favorite athletes are the fighters. Um, but I, I do relate to the fighters. And what I'm saying to them is the same thing I was saying to myself, which is, look, it's never, the life is never going to be fair. You have to, you know, make yourself better. You have to create your own worth. And if you don't like a situation, you don't have, like you said, know your worth. You don't have to stay in a situation. But if you do, then you're staying there. Don't be, don't be the ungrateful whatever. Just take from it whatever positives you can. And when you're, if you're ever ready to move on, you're ready to move on. If you get a better deal somewhere else, you get a better deal. No problem. But... I take accountability. I was disempowering myself, waiting on other people to give me more and being resentful. Me, and like, no, Frank, if you really think you're worth that, then you know, work on your inner, work on your mind, work on your thoughts, work on your energy, yep. and go manifest that. And stop blaming them. The fact that you don't have that, the fact that you did not manifest that, has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with me. And if I think any other way, the moment I start blaming them, which I did. The moment I start blaming them, I'm disempowering myself. We're no closer to the solution. We are closer to the solution when I say, as I did, and it's true, those guys were good to me personally. It was an incredible ride. It was an incredible experience. I learned a ton. I'm grateful. And now, what do you want? Yeah, I want to make a lot of money. I want to do this. I want to have this impact on the world. What's stopping you? Go do it. Get right internally. Go do it. And if maybe you'll even wind up making a call to one of those guys and they'll help. Okay, look, I'll put you in front of whoever. It doesn't have to be this negative glasses half full thing and people just choose to see that way. That's just, that's a loser's game. Yeah. And I don't, I, I bought into it before. I don't buy into it now. And that's where I'm coming from. I'm not being, look, I'm, I'm pro fighter. I love the fighters. I watch for the fighters. I love Dana, but I don't turn into a UFC pay-per-view to watch to watch Dana. Yeah. You know, I find him entertaining to speak, but and I find Connor's press conferences entertaining. But I, I, pay, <laughs> yeah. I buy a pay-per-view because I want to see the fighters. Yeah. That's why I buy it. Yeah. And so I am pro fighter. And but you guys have to start surrounding. Look, your managers, your sponsors. Who, who's bringing you? You know, even outside of the cage, like what are your you know what? What's going on? What, what's the plan? What are their plans? Are it's they just are they just show. getting you the fight and then Most that's it? it? And Most are they just it. using the Reebok deal? Are they even using the Reebok deal as an excuse not to get you more sponsors outside of the cage? 
because what? they're not doing a good job outside of the cage. Oh, no, they just wanted to be on your butt when you're in the cage so we can't get any sponsors. Eh, I'm sorry. Okay. You should have, You should have. if you're that good of a fighter and you're that marketable, you should have a lot of sponsors outside of the cage, even if you don't wear it in the walk of the cage. And if you don't, who's that on? Who's the blame? Is it you? Is it your manager? You need to find that person. Or if you don't have that person, you better go find that person to manifest that person. Because I find it hard to believe you're that marketable and they can't get you a sponsor outside of the cage. You can quibble about the Reebok deal all day. But if, you're, if your manager has no sponsors for you outside or a paltry amount and you're really that marketable and you're that good a fighter, I'm sorry. You need to, you need to go deeper down the rabbit hole. Dana White's not your problem. Yep. Absolutely. Now, you had mentioned earlier that you did a TED, TEDx talk. Yeah. What was that on? That was Building a Better World with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Very interesting. Yeah. And Very it, cliche, but I, I really do believe in it. Did they give you the 18 minutes to do it? They gave, Well, this was interesting. So it was interesting how that whole thing came about. So it, it's, it's just, you know, right place, right time. Sure. So I had a friend of mine that I had, he was a journalist, really good journalist in town here in Vegas. And we sort of reconnected after years. And he was like, you know, you like doing that speaking thing. By the way, there's going to be a TEDx talk at UNLV. They're having their first one. You know, call, send it into so-and-so, so-and-so. So I, you know, and he's, and so I went and researched it and it was like, I had missed the deadline by a day. You had to send your application in. So I missed the deadline. I'm like, oh man. So I thought I'm going to send it anyway, but I'm going to send it in with a heartfelt note. One thing you learn from being a journalist, it's kind of like when you're a journalist, I would equate it to if you wanted to be a great defense attorney, right? Defense attorney, what's the best thing for you to be outside of college? A prosecutor. The best thing, if you want to be a defense attorney, it's been done so many times, sure. be a prosecutor. Learn all the tricks of a trade of a prosecutor, and then that will prepare you to defend clients. And so the same thing as a journalist. When you think of what would it take to, to get a yes on the other end, you learn that. I learned that at least because I'm like, I know as a journalist, you get pitched all these stories. Everybody, everybody and their brother wants you to do a story. Sure. And so you know what works, what's a good story look like, what's not, what's a good pitch look like, what's a crappy pitch. And so I sort of have that instinct of like, okay, how can I be compelling in this email and make them care and get me a, and get a yes? And so I, you know, sent her that and it was very heartfelt and I instantly could realize I was dealing with an academic. And, um, and so this person had never done jujitsu or martial arts. Like she's just an academic. She doesn't even know what jujitsu is. And so I had to take two people, they came out, I had to audition. They were like, okay, we'll give you a three-minute exhibition. That's all they wanted initially. It wasn't even a talk. They're like, we just want a jiu-jitsu exhibition. You're describing what that is. Can you just do that at our show, like three minutes? I'm thinking like, I'm like, yes. But in the back of my mind, I was thinking, no, I want to manifest a talk. I want to actually give a talk. I don't want to just like do like arm bars, whatever. And so, but I took the initial, I took that in. I'm like, okay, yeah. three minutes. And so then she's like, we want to come by and, and, and audition you. We got to see even for the exhibition. We need to see what this looks like. We don't know what this looks like. So they come by. I lived downtown at the time. And she brings this guy with her. The, the guy with her. I need a yes from both of them, right? I, I still don't have a yes. Wow. I'm auditioning now. I've went through all these emails. And like, well, okay, they're going to come and watch me roll around on a mat. 
and they're going to make a decision. And so when the, when they, the, the woman gets there late, the guy gets there first. I'd never met him. And, he's, and the first thing he says to me, hi, I'm so-and-so, and I just want you to know uh, I, I don't like fighting, and I don't know what jiu-jitsu is. That's the first thing he said to me. Huh. I just want you to know I don't like fighting, and I don't know what jiu-jitsu is. Wow. That was the first thing he said to me. Welcome. And so it was him and I for the next 20 minutes before the other professor came. And I went from them being... Who cares? What is this? I don't like fighting to a yes, you know, 30 minutes after the, you know, just showing them more the philosophical side, the ethos of it, the values system of the people building side of jujitsu, not emphasizing the joint manipulation stuff as much. And I went from the next time I talked to her, she's like, maybe we'll give you five minutes. And then then later it was, maybe we'll give you eight minutes. And then it was 10 minutes. So I didn't get the normal 18 minutes. And some every now and again, they'll go to 21 or whatever. But I didn't get that, but I did get 10. Okay. And and my big idea was basically... Jiu-jitsu is this life-changing art. I personally, no, no offense to, to MMA fighting, whatever, but I think jiu-jitsu is a better people builder. It just has a, a different sensibility. Sure. Um, it's it's more the warrior poetry. It's the yin, the yang, whereas fighting, you know, for, fighting is like the warrior code. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of the warrior poet code, yeah. not just the warrior code. The warrior code, like anybody can just be, let's just be smash, 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 smash. And that's like, yeah. I, I'm more of a fan of, you know, when do you, restraint, peace, you know, being disagreeing, being loving, having a ferocious competition, and then being friendly. I, sure. I'm, a, I'm a fan of, there's a whole system of that. So anyway, jujitsu is expensive. It's 150, 160, some markets, it's 250 a month. And I just thought, you know, hey, wouldn't it be great if, um, if we spread this idea where they have in Brazil and they do it in the United Arab Emirates where they have 75,000 kids in the United Arab Emirates and they train for free. The government wow. and the royal family, they bankroll and they, and they train jiu-jitsu for free. And in parts of Brazil, some of those kids in those favelas, there are a lot of those instructors, God bless them, they, they let those kids train for free. In America, there are some programs, but it's just just saying, look, we can do more. We don't. Let's take in five to 10 kids a year. Um, and we know we have this power, this life-changing power. Let's let some people in who don't have the money. They're not middle class. They're not... They're not rich kids. We can't just have it yeah. be for people who have the money. Let's give it to the kids. We know we can change lives with it. And let's make a goal of 250,000 of them at least in the next 10 years. So that was the the idea. Working on it. I'm trying to get my, a lot of money so I can just really put a lot of momentum behind it. But yeah. that was the idea. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, we are at the time, sir. All right. This has gone long and awesome. We're two and a half hours in. Wow. Crazy, right? Yeah. And we could keep going. Um, Frank, how can people find you? FrankCarreri.com, of course. You're- yeah, FrankCarreri.com. And uh, if you want to send me some hate mail or, you know, whatever, I'm sure that maybe there's some things I, I said. Uh, Frank at FrankCarreri.com. It's Frank at FrankCarreri.com. And it's C-U-R-R-E-R-I. Um, but yeah, you know, again, uh, we're all, you know, again, we're going to disagree. People out there, we're not all, I'm not saying I have all the right answers. Mike's not saying he has. There's, Whoa, hey, yeah, boy. there's a way, there's no the way, there's a way. I'm just sharing my perspective, which that's the perspective I have today. It could change in five, 10 years. Um, and uh, I'm just trying to figure it out like everybody else is. So, 
Absolutely. Well, Frankie, it's been awesome having you on. Your insight is, is a, a pleasure for sure. You're a wealth of knowledge, huge experience, and just a good dude. I like to be around you. I like these conversations you, that we have. Frank and I have conversations like this. Thank you so this, much for having me. Of yeah. course, offline. I and mean, for years now, we had these conversations. So it's nice that we get to bring you guys in to sit down with us and, and have this talk. I'm grateful. This has been, this has been awesome. Awesome. Well, remember, everybody, don't count calories. Make calories count. Boom! Okay.